Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one and a fun one. Our guest this week is accomplished bassist Guy Pratt. I'll get to his history in a second, but I think most people know that he is currently the co-host with his buddy Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet of the second best music podcast out there, Rock on Tours. Uh, these guys, and it's been going for about a year and a half now or so, so good. These two bring just so much experience and love of music and wisdom to these conversations that are just fantastic. I love what they are doing. Guy is so funny and tells fantastic stories. You're going to find out all of that here. So anyway, Guy's career begins in the mid-80s with Ice House. Uh, he plays with Iva Davies, our former guest, on a couple of albums. That kind of morphs into some session work. He works with people like Brian Ferry with the Dream Academy. That's why you're listening to Edge of Forever on here. I love this song. And uh, eventually, though, that turns into a gig playing with David Gilmore with, in Pink Floyd near the end of the 80s. He tours with them for a while. He plays on the Delicate Sound of Thunder album. So that, I mean, that is huge. And from there, it just keeps going. He joins that super group, sort of, Toy Matinee. We get into that as well. He plays with Madonna. That's one of his shining highlights of his whole career. There's a bunch of other stuff in here. So now, let me tell you this. First of all, uh, the stories are so funny and come so fast. I honestly ran out of exclamations. So I've listened to this and I just, all of you that get annoyed with me because I just say, wow, and no way, and really, and cr that's crazy or whatever, uh, you try thinking of more things to say when you're talking to Guy Pratt and his stories are just rapid firing all over you. I don't know that I ever have laughed harder. Well, this and one other episode, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, are probably the hardest I've laughed with anyone so far. So, so funny. And the stories just keep coming. Now, we did this in two parts. We talked for like an hour and a half one day. And he said, you know, we can do a part two. So a couple of weeks later, we regrouped and talked again. And we're going to split these two here. So in the middle, after about an hour and a half, I'll do a little midsection here where I introduce the second part. And we'll go from there. That one's shorter, more like a half hour. So anyway, when we first started talking, by the way, of course, we're commiserating about podcasting and all that kind of stuff. My Zoom background was a picture of David Bowie, which is why we get off starting about David Bowie. All right? Guy is the best. I think you're going to love this. He called me from his home in Brighton. But you've got a weird, because of your green screen, <laughs> you've got a weird floating. I'm in my like, basement. Like, like Bowie is about to punch you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's my favorite, and uh, I feel no, like I, I, yeah. Sorry, Cam. No, I well, I was gonna say um, making him the background for a lot of these interviews sometimes brings up uh, inspires people to tell some good stories. Well, you know, of course, his penultimate live performance ever was with us. Really, with David Gilmore, Royal Albert Hall. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
And it came completely out of the blue. It was just because um, Nick Belshaw, our tour manager, used to be Bowie's production manager. And I don't know if David knew he was, because uh, I know, because David had made this trip to London to show Iman and his daughter around London and, and uh -huh. his all the places of his youth and everything. And apparently they did all this touristy stuff. They went on like the London Eye and everything and all very low profile. And it was all cool. And he just happened to be in town. And Nick just said to David, almost said, Bowie's in town, should ask him to come and sing. Went, yeah, sure. Like that's going to happen. <laughs> and and David said yes. And wow. <laughs> so wow. was it now you had I know Ice House opened for uh yes, Bowie during series We did. Right? Yeah, we yeah. did. Did you ever interact with him? Or I had a night out with him. I went out with him on the his what was quite a famous night out in Rotterdam. I got taken out by the band and really? him uh, to this club where he got madly mobbed. I mean, it was insane. Like, people were grabbing his throat and stuff ah. and he had to get pulled out. And, and I saw, I remember sitting down, we were at this fabulous VIP table. I just remember Carlos Alomar saying to me, thing with David, it's great going out with David. You just got to let him leave. <laughs> oh, that's um, great. And uh, I actually, I, I did have the coolest moment ever the most because I was only, Hang on, this was what was it 84 83 it was only like 83 that, 83 i think 83 so i was 21 right so uh -huh. this was all and we were playing at milton Keynes, at milton Keynes bowl and i was we were backstage i remember i was backstage and we all had we all had sort of porter cabins for dressing rooms uh -huh. and and my mum had come backstage and i didn't want to take her into our court porter cabin because the band had only just discovered cocaine and it was a mess in there uh <laughs> they're australian bit behind the curve and so I was just standing outside talking to my mum and suddenly this limo just pulls up right next to us. The door opens and David gets out and he's just standing around and goes, and he goes, hello, guy. And he remembered my name, you know, because we'd been out in Rotterdam. I went, oh, hi, David. This is Tessa, my mum. And hello, Tessa. And shook her hand and walk off. I was like, yes! Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, it's the best. Now, when I had Iva on here, he was explaining, but I don't remember the, we talked six months ago and I, seven months ago. And I'm trying to remember what the reason was for you guys just doing, you didn't do any U S dates. It was just the European dates that you opened. Yeah. Up, though, right? I, um, I, do you know what? I think he turned down that and the Peter Gabriel. I think we were offered a Peter Gabriel support right. as well because he was doing the score for Razorback. Oh, I really? think that might be true. That might not be true. I, I'll I, have I to might go have back. that wrong. I know he certainly turned something down. Yeah. But that was a very funny thing because, um, yeah, because when I first met, because we were doing these festivals before to make the thing worthwhile, we were uh -huh. doing these um, this German traveling festival thing called Mid to Summer Night's Dream with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and all sorts of people. And uh, I was in catering, one, and Bowie came to one of the gigs, and he came to see us. And I was in catering, and like there's all these flash pops going off. It's like fucking hell, David Bowie's walked in, <laughs> and for some reason he grabbed me and said, "I think you should be in this." And so I got my picture taken with Bowie, and I'm standing there like that. <laughs> <laughs> And I've got this picture. And of course, everyone the, and the label and everyone have been furious, desperately trying to get a picture of, of Ivor with David. Uh -huh. Ivor didn't talk to me for days. Really? <laughs> livid. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I then recreated that photo. When, Dave, when David came to the Albert Hall, we did this sort of team photo on the stage after sound check. Uh -huh. And I was writing my book at the time. All this stuff is in my book. I'm, you know, I've told this so many times. I, also I know. In my stand-up show. No, it's all right. No, no, I started it. You didn't. It's, it's okay. This is okay. this is on me. This is for your listeners who aren't familiar with my work, um, sure. and uh, which will be many, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and um, 
but yeah, so we we did this sort of team photo, which is ended up on the which is the inside sleeve of Remember That Night, which I've always said I I love that picture because it looks like it's my band and David is Robert Wyatt's nurse because <laughs> <laughs> I'm right in the middle. Look, David's standing there holding Robert's wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> and Bowie's right on the end. But anyway, so when, when, once we'd done that, because I, I thought, oh, fuck, because I'm going to put that picture, the original picture in the book. So I said to David, hi, listen, I hope you don't mind, but I want to recreate this picture that you and I had taken years ago. And he was like uh -huh. a bit baffled. I went, all right. So Brian Rasick, the photographer, went and stood there. And I went and pulled the same pose I had before, that kind of <laughs> sort of who, me thing. And, and David went, I remember that picture. <laughs> no, you don't. No but way. Yeah, he went Ice House, Germany, 1983. No way. Went, You're no way. He went, yeah, I was wearing this scarf. I was like, <laughs> fuck. Do you know what? I think I think there was some haberdashery involved. I went home, looked at the photo. Of course there wasn't. Complete no bollocks. Way. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant touch that. Oh, that's great. I had, um, I've had a few, I mean, any anytime I can talk about David, I do. But I had Fee uh, Waybill on here. Oh Blues. yeah. 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 And he was telling a story that I'd never heard before, but that blew me away. I guess the tubes were opening for David on Sirius Moonlight in the States. And oh, uh, were they, well, oh, were they still around then? Yes. That was, I, oh yeah, of course it was only, yeah. Yeah. They were, that was like kind of, I would see them as them. late seventies. Right. They didn't actually have punk. any success commercially until the early eighties. Like she's a beauty and oh, right. I don't want to wait anymore and stuff like that. But yeah, I've no, you, you've talked to a lot of people I know. I've noticed yeah. on your shows, you know. So that's quite. Yeah. And it's you actually have that big ice house banner on your. <laughs> I don't know if there's a big ice house quotient to your yes. show. No, so there's a funny <laughs> story there. So when uh, we put out new episodes every Tuesday, and every Tuesday morning, I swap out the cover photo on our Facebook page, and that's what alerts people to who the guest is. And I used to do it on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. And on our website, and I eventually realized people weren't really paying attention to the other two, just the Facebook page. So the last time that I remembered to swap out all of those pictures was when I had Andrew Ferris on from NXS. What was that? About a year ago. Okay. And I left the picture of NXS as the cover photo on our website. Well, then when I had Iva on the podcast... And I sent his publicist the, the link to the episode saying, here, you know, here it is, share it. She wrote back or whoever it was and said, why is there a picture of NXS on your website? <laughs> and I had, oh, yeah. They, yes. were, they were oasis to our blur. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I hadn't even thought of that. I just hadn't changed the picture in a long time. We weren't so, allowed to hang out with them. I became good friends with Michael years later. Really? We literally weren't allowed to hang out with like No. They, no they were very much the other team. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. So I want to know more about that. But so I hurried and swapped out the picture oh, to yeah, Ice sorry. House. And then same, I, I haven't remembered to swap out the picture since then. Okay. So well, no, that's I, I have no problem with that. I, I think I, I'm, it's a picture that I'm in, but I'm not yes. on your banner. Well, it's, so. uh, if you look it up on the phone, on your phone, it's all there. But if you look it up on it's the web, it's really not an issue. <laughs> well, I just want you to know, you know, I want you to know you're there. <laughs> so, okay. So how did you tell me the reality of, okay. So we should start with Ice House. First of all, yeah. from what I can tell, that's your first 
recorded anything. And I think it's really interesting because the Sidewalk album, I love that. And I think that's your first thing that you appear on. And even the first song on there, uh, Taking the Town... First sounds you hear are the bass coming from oh, you. That's, a, that's well, I'd never thought of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the first album I played on, and I, you know, went to Sydney to do it. Well, yeah. How did you end up in an Australian <laughs> band? That well, that's always been a bit of a. It was through. It's partly through my mate JC from the members. Um, huh? Through, uh, and we because this was we all lived right. This is back when Notting Hill was this the just this incredibly cool melting pot of musicians and drug dealers and gangsters and and toffs and you know like everything a city should be you know right. and um, right. and there were lots of squats and so there were people with money there were people with no money there was you know it was brilliant it was just nothing like you know now it's just sort of hedge fund movie star central and and all the record companies were there rough trade was there uh stiff was there virgin were there you know it was it was i mean it really was just looking back now i just think god man what a you know what a golden place uh-huh. and a golden age so virgin had their offices on labrick grove and there was an australian guy who worked there called laurie dunn who was very very nice and uh who everyone knew and there was this thing where where everyone you always had to try and get mates in record companies because because we were all skin, uh-huh. and so you would and you would go and hang out with your mate at the record company and then just go through the promo cupboards, and Nick it was usually twelve inches that they had that they didn't you know like some some specials remix or so, I don't know the stuff they didn't really want and you would go and sell it at the record and tape exchange and that would buy your your bevies for the evening, so I was always hanging out at Virgin and kind of just getting in the way. And so Ice House had had uh, what well, <coughs> they'd been flowers, and they basically just split up. So Ivor had gone and made this album uh, with what's his name, you know, Maroda's right man, the guy who oh uh, went, Keith Forsey, Keith Forsey, uh, and needed to put a band together. And I think I don't know how hard he'd looked, but they, he was having trouble finding a bass player in Australia because Australia was still meeting two veg rock and roll. You know, it was still it was like, it was the Angels, it was the Jizz, it was you know AC DC yeah. Rose Tattoo. And, um, and, and of course, a fantastic arty punk scene in Melbourne. Yeah. But the sort of bass, but, but of course, he wanted, because 
English music had all got quite funky by then, you know, and uh-huh. and because and Ivor was so influenced by Fred, he was massively, massively into things like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, right? But oh, he turned okay. me on to that. Okay. Um, and so he, he wanted, to, so also, you know, it was a pretentious band, right? It was a kind of new wave of pretentious band. And what could be more pretentious than having an English bass player? <laughs> <laughs> So, so Ray Hearn, the manager who was mates with Laurie Dunn, had sort of called him up and said, listen, do you know any bass players? And a young bass player's not doing it, who we could take to Australia. He goes, yes, I do know one. And frankly, I could do it getting him out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> could you take him, please? Get him out yeah, of here. Exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, so Ivor came back and um, yeah, my first, you know, they called up and said, do you, do you want to come and Oh, are you interested in auditioning for this band? I was like, yeah, fuck, yeah. yeah. So I went and met Ivor, and we got on really well. I really liked him. Um, you know, we went and had a couple of dinners, and then we – and I auditioned loads. Of, we had this amazing drummer audition, because I, I think they just took one look at me, and we're just like, yeah, fine, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Also, I, I was very keen for them to know I had an Anthony Price suit. That seemed like the ultimate – Really? Like, Never. I, yeah. Yeah, I did. I had an Anthony Price suit, which was my payment for doing a, the, a tour – standing in for the bass player for Funkapolitan, who were managed by Anthony Price's partner. So the band were all dressed in Anthony Price. So even though, yeah, I was on the dole and starving, but I had an Anthony Price suit. Genius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Genius. <laughs> I love it. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so I, I don't know if they even looked, talked to any other bass players, but also, I could have, you know, I was, uh, I was 19. No, I was 20. I was just, I was okay. 20. And, you know, I mean, Gorgeous. I look great at that. You know, in this, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, angelic. Cherubic. Of course. I'm mean, looking back now. It was such an eighties look, especially that whole kind of Anthony Andrews sort of yeah. bride's head thing was, right. you know, was very hip at the time. Sure. Um, and so I don't even know if they saw any other bass players, but then I, I had this great day of auditioning drummers with Ivor and we had, and it was, we had all sorts of people. We had a guy from Adam and the Ants. We had all, all sorts of people came and went. And, like and then Chris we ended Hughes? Up, Chris Hughes came in. A, was and, it Chris Hughes? Or, well, they had two drummers, didn't they? Oh, okay. Well, he was Merrick. He was the first one to produce this stuff. Crazy. So this this audition for drummers was happening in London? That was in London, yeah. Yeah, because he wanted an English drummer as well. Okay. And then, he, of course, and then he picked up Andy Kunter, uh, yeah. the keyboard player, yeah. uh, who was playing with Hazel O'Connor, who's a sweet, whose nickname was Roots. Because of Kunta, Kunta Kinte. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Oh. <laughs> no, he he told us that we didn't give it to him. That was he came with that nickname. That wasn't us. Right? <laughs> also, I do actually think when we had because I can't remember, you know, getting. I don't remember getting the visas. Everything was. Started, I remember that we 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 were on student flights. You know, everything was being <laughs> done very cheaply. I yeah. don't remember. I don't even know if I had a. I don't think I actually had a work permit when I first went there, because I know that. Because Australia was so racist then, I think Andy was going to fall foul of the white Australia policy when it came to him really? getting a work permit. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I might be wrong about. Oh, some, something was talked about there. I don't. You know, yeah. it's all it's mists of time stuff. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so he basically now had two English guys, and the, oh. and I don't because I don't remember Andy being at the audition I, again i don't know if he really auditioned any i think he just thought i need a keyboard player and this guy will be fun because i guess the thing is that it, it's you know the, the stuff with anyone who calls himself a professional musician should be able to play 
the parts that Ivers come up with. I guess. Right. I don't, you know. right. So, uh, although it turns out there was one song on, because um, uh, I was into, I was onto a bit of, I, I was very much into the whole hip hop thing was happening. We were all mad into funk and African music really? in okay. London. That was the whole thing. Yeah, rock and roll was gone. That was over. Huh. And yeah, and, and I was big into, and I was into a lot of very muso stuff. And there was one song on the album called Mysterious Thing. Because yeah. most of the bass on the album is great. It's really, I mean, Ivers a yes. very, very, very good bass arranger. So he yes. writes brilliant bass parts. A lot of the bass parts I played were essentially his, including Hey Little Girl, which apparently I was never playing right. Uh, so, so, the, so the current Ice House bass player has said in a video, <laughs> yeah, no one's ever played that right. It's okay. like, yeah, well, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> right. Guy, fine. <laughs> Go have your job. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean that. Love and peace. And um, but yeah, so there's one song called "Mysterious Thing," which had this great slap bass on it. I went, "Oh, that's great!" And I was like, "Oh yeah, it's some bloke. It was some session guy we got in in LA. It's um, Abraham something. A Abraham Laboreal." I was like, "What? No way! That's like, who's playing bass on there? Yeah, it's fucking Abe Laboreal. It's like no a, way. A, a, so of course that to me was like, fuck! I get to play an Abe Laboreal bass part. That you know, <laughs> that was how cool is that? Yes." So I've always been curious because, and I was, I sort of was gently talking about this with Iva because uh, that sidewalk. Did he mention me? <laughs> I'll, I'll go and listen to it. Yes, of oh, course okay. your name came up. Sidewalk <laughs> especially feels to me like an album of a band who is on a similar trajectory to Simple Minds. And um, I was wondering if Simple Minds or Derek Forbes specifically factored in at all Yes. Or if it was just coincidentally that you two I, bands no, are I kind think of it kind of was coincidental. I think it's um, because, yeah, I mean, New Gold Dream. Actually, yes, I think he was a massive influence, but I didn't realize it at the time. I was okay. fucking massively into Simple Minds. I yes. mean, that New Gold Dream, absolute landmark album. Yeah. Brilliant record. And and Derek Forbes, I exalt as a bass player. Just, he's one of those fantastic, I mean, it's so simple, perfect funky melodic lines he's you know i absolutely exalt that guy but i don't think i was trying to cop for Derek oh. four i think i i th i think we're all doing the same thing we're all trying to cop a muso type thing but because we weren't there and we were yeah. all 
essentially coming from a sort of punk sensibility that we invented this sort of mishmash style. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. That's, I like so, Yeah, you're that. right. Do you know, here's an interesting thing. I remember someone pointing this out, and it's so true. You remember there was this point in the 80s where it was going to be Simple Minds or you 2 I know. I know. It's, we were there right? once. There was this point. Yeah, it was, we were there. There was this point. It was Simple Minds or you 2 They were both at the same place, yes. and it was going to be one of them. And it could have been either one of them. Yes. I know I'm a huge <laughs> simple minds fan and uh, I, I love them. Even the, you know, a lot of people dropped off after new gold dream thought they got too commercial, but I love them enough that I find it all kind of interesting. Oh, I still, water, waterfront still kills me. You know. Oh, no kidding. You, you know, you know, uh, well, cause you know what it is, don't you? What, what do you mean? What? <laughs> it's fucking one of these days, isn't it? Dunka, 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 dunka. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. <laughs> I don't know point. that I've thought of that before. Oh, well, okay. If you want to hear how, how I've always been in on this gag, if you go and listen to the delicate sound of thunder and yes. maybe pulse, I'm, I don't know if we were still doing it on pulse, but um, Gary Wallace and I had this gag that's um, at the end of one of these days when it's all going nuts, you know, it's, you know, all bells and whistles. We actually go into waterfront. We actually do a dunka, 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 bang, bang, dunka, 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 bang, bang. No way, I've chord. never pieced yeah. that together before. <laughs> wow. And like, I, I don't know if you see, I can, I have my, yeah, I can see you holding it up. CD right here. So, okay, so let's, we got to talk about Pink Floyd then. There's so much. Oh no, my no, gosh, no, we, we can go back. It's all right. It's all right. Don't worry. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I'm. This is how it's I like be. talking about Ice House. <laughs> well, okay, okay. We can do this in two parts if you want. It's why you know I, I, I love doing okay. this. Okay, it's what, it's what I do. Okay, I um. There's just a lot of ground to cover. So tell me then. Uh, first of all, why'd you leave Ice House? Were you official member or how did it work? Um, no, I don't know. There was never any talk of that. Um. You know, I was I was a hired hand. I was paid very very well. I think considering, uh, considering you know the level they were at. I remember I had this big delusional thing when we did Cyborg, where I actually thought I was going to get a piece of the action. You know, <laughs> and I, yeah. I was like, and then I remember having the conversation with John, the manager. I was like, mate, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I did get paid very well for it, okay, and good. very well looked after by them. And do you know what? The leaving Ice House still stands as the most difficult grown-up really? professional thing I've ever done. It's huh. probably, you know, my entire life has just been drifting in and out of things. Yeah. And um, yeah. as I always said, career isn't something I had. It's something I did. Yes. I just careered wildly <laughs> from one thing to another. And, uh, but, and the only conscious thing where, and, and we just made this great album, this fucking great, you know, Measure for Measure, which I still I say is one yes. of the great lost albums of the 80s. I agree. It's a I classic album. Time heals the 
I think it's Ivor at the absolute peak of his powers. Yes. And also because he wears his influences on his sleeve, it's when his choice of influences was perfect. Yes. So it also significantly shows you the importance of Tears for Fears and the fact that he picked them as an influence. Yes. Um, but yeah, so we'd just done this amazing album and we're about to go on tour. And I'd just got been offered the Brian Ferry gig to record with uh. Brian Ferry. And this would basically be, and the and it was because um, Rhett Davis, who'd produced, I always thought this was funny that Rhett Davis was brought in to produce Measure for Measure. And I always thought the label are doing this for one of two, or, you know, Ivor wants it, obviously, uh -huh. but it's, this is for one of two reasons. It's just like, you know what? If you're going to copy Brian Ferry, do it fucking properly. Get the <laughs> producer in. Or the other one, or the other reason is the complete opposite, which is, mate, we've got to get him off this Brian Ferry tip. <laughs> <laughs> so you get Brian's producer in and he can just go, really? Yeah. Really? yeah. <laughs> I know the guy and you're no Brian Ferry. Do you know what the ultimate is, is that when I did my sort of, yeah, anyway, and the thing was that Brett, Rhett was, was just starting to work, just starting to gear up on a Brian Ferry album after okay. you know, Boys and Girls, which was a yeah. seminal record, yeah. but hadn't had the American success they wanted. And Brian's working setup at that time was, because Brian's literally, oh, I've got an idea. Huh. Ding, ding. Yes. No, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and 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 but <laughs> I'm not. But you know, Brian is a fucking musical totally. genius, and and but it's it all comes from this incredibly ethereal bit of bits, yeah. which somehow coalesce together. It's kind of like you know the formation of the universe. All this sort of dust coalesces into a uh -huh. dot, you know, into uh -huh. a black hole. <laughs> and um, but the way he worked at that point was that he'd have an idea. And he'd fly to New York and book the power station and get Marcus Miller and Andy Newmark or whatever. And it was like, I think Retina was like, mate, this is unsustainable. You can't right. do this. Right. And so he just wanted to get a little team together in London and had this fabulous little studio, the EG Studios, where we were doing all the Ice House stuff, um, which I think used to be Sound Techniques, in, in fact, where okay. Fairport and everyone used to do their albums. And um, I might be wrong. And, and, and so when, when we're doing this album, you know, Rhett kept whispering. Every time sort of Ivor went to the loo or anything, <laughs> Rhett would go, listen, guy, you're perfect for Brian. And you've got to go, shh, he's coming. And I was like, what, what? Really? You know, this idea of working with Brian Ferry was like, you're, you're, I mean, this is, you know, yeah. next level. Although I, I had admittedly been working with Robert Palmer right. already. Yeah, so Coming up on that too. Yeah. Well, the, you know, I, I, you kind of know when your star is in the ascension, yes. you know, and it's, and so there was this guitarist, Chester Kamen. And so Rhett had this idea that he'd just have me and Chester and we'd just be like kind of the sorcerer's apprentices in the studio. And so uh -huh. we could just be there on tap for Brian to come in and, you know, and let the dust fragments uh -huh. coalesce uh -huh. and, and we'd be the ones to make that happen. And so it, it was potentially a very long time. But, and it was like, being involved in the creation of a Brian Ferry record. It's like, come on. Wow. Come on. Really? And it's, and I thought, and if I sign, if I go off on tour with Ice House, you know, that's gone. And I'd already been proved my loyalty. I turned down playing on the first Mick Jagger solo album so that really? I wouldn't miss a day's rehearsal in Sydney. 
Yeah, price. Oh, I've been really? I have been a good loyal boy. Yeah. And this was the rehearsals for the Cyborg Tour. I'm the only person who's actually played on the whole fucking album. I'm literally no. the one person who doesn't really need to be there. And yeah. So and I kind of thought, well, you know, my karmic credit is pretty good here. Yeah. Oh and, man. So okay, so working with Yeah, and that was with Bill Laswell. Oh. Yes, I turned it wow. down for Ice House. Oh yeah. man. So when you make that jump then to, to, uh, do you know when you're going, well, it sounds like you don't know when you're, what's going to happen whenever you make any of these decisions, but you basically go from the, from the, um, kind of the stability of ice house yes. to the instability of session work and being the hired hand. Now you were kind yeah. of a hired hand with ice. House. I was a hired hand with that, but I said, but you know, ice house were a, and ice house also had this, this beautiful thing of being in Australia. A lot of the work was in was in Europe. I never did anything in America with them. But there was this fantastic thing of, of they go home and then you're just at home, you know, and they're right. on the other side of the world. It was right. it was that was that was kind of really and you know, you got also I mean, the age of by the age of 22, I had played every RSL and Leagues club and I'd been up and down Australia, up and down New Zealand, you know, broken the Beatles house record at Dunedin Town Hall, the most southerly gig in New Zealand. You know, I mean, it was, it was great. And, and Australia was a long way away then. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it was, uh, yeah. you know, I used to write to my mum every Sunday morning, you know, when I was on tour with uh-huh. <laughs> That's the phone calls were a fortune nine hours out. And, and you didn't really know. It's like back then, you know, people went to Australia. They didn't come back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of the other side of the world. I mean, it literally I mean, it really is was. I mean, side. obviously, it it's still the other side of the world, but the other side of the world isn't the other side of the right, world right. anymore. It's you know a smaller I mean? world now. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, Brian Ferry, then I, um, you're on Kiss and Tell, right? Which yes. Is the first that was sort one of the first solo thing of his to make a dent. Okay. Uh, uh, well, my sort of audition, actually, because this is a funny little ice house story. My so- I got asked to sort of audition in that um, he he was doing a song uh, for the film Legend, uh, which is called "Is Your Love Strong Enough." Yeah. And so and they already had a bass on it, but they thought, but they weren't quite happy with all of it. And so Rhett said, "Why don't you come down, meet Brian, and you know, come and and this song." This is where Ivor got to live his ultimate dream. This song, because Brian was just putting it off and putting it off. Because if if you make if you give Brian a deadline, you know he automatically reacts to it. And 
because you know record record deadlines are kind of artificial film deadlines are not you cannot fuck with film deadlines right. twice right. i've been through this with him and so and so he kept putting off writing the lyrics you know because brian always puts off writing lyrics anyway and he kept putting off and putting it off and rep was going look you need to do it oh yeah i'll do it so eventually went if you don't write these lyrics i'm gonna get ivor davis to write it and so as a way as a way of jamming him up, Ivor wrote this song, and I don't know. I think I I don't know. You'd have to ask Ivor, but I think Rhett actually got Ivor to go and do a vocal. Really? So like, Ivor had this ultimate dream enough? of yeah, uh, but it wasn't as your love strong enough. It was this other song yes. that, that Ivor had written over the over the track, and so I think there might be a tape somewhere of Ivor no being way. Brian Ferry. <laughs> wow! Oh wow! That is great. But I ended up, um, so, but I, they ended up using me on the end of the song. In fact, that's you can hear me on the outro, and it's actually very, it's a very me bass part. Okay. On the outro good. of the song, and of course, it features um, Mr. Gilmore on guitar. Yes. It's Chester and Dave on guitar. And th yep. that was one of my first proper meetings with David was uh, when we shot was when we shot the video for it. Huh. And we, we went to this studio in Fulham. And it was like, and you know, videos are just sitting around all day. And of course, this is when David wasn't really up to much. Yeah. And so he was he was just kind of a bit bored. And and more to the point, so was his tech, Phil Taylor, was very, very bored and just yeah. said, So so I turn up. And I go into the dressing room and it's like, fuck, there's David. There's David go, oh no, you know. Uh -huh. And literally with a forest of guitars. There's like really? he's got to mime a guitar solo. <laughs> there's a for there's like 30 fucking guitars <laughs> on set. You have to pick my way through these priceless, you know. <laughs> oh my god, there's a Gretsch Penguin. Oh my god, there's a 56 broadcaster. Oh my god, there's and um <laughs> and I, and this so I is sit all down just so he can pick one to do a little yeah. thing on the video. Yeah, but and and but I'm sure David David probably said, you know what, just bring a strat. I'm sure David probably said, you know, David doesn't care. He's not right. like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um and I sit down and I'm stuck opposite David, you know, who just I'm terrified of. Terror. Oh. I'd had one meeting with him before, which was so disastrous. I just literally, he just had to walk away. I was so paralyzed with fear. Oh, oh. And um, 
so and I'm just sitting there and he's noodling on this white strap, not plugged in. He's just noodling away on this white. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, what oh the guitar, ask him about the guitar. You know, right. I said, that's a nice looking old strap, David. Is it, I mean, is it very old? He just went, there aren't any older than this. Flipped it over and there's 0001 on the back. No <laughs> so I was way. like, oh, for really? sake, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's like, that is the last time I ever ask anyone about how old their guitar is. <laughs> oh man yeah it doesn't get any older actually guy than this one right here exactly oh my gosh wow um okay i i want to throw in songs that i think you may have worked on that i love and if there's a story there great and okay yeah okay i shouldn't admit this but i will i uh i like i love roxy music i've never come around completely what's the problem what what, what is the Oh, I said, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Sorry, I'm wondering, um, where, so, I'm wondering where that was going. But his solo album from just a few years ago, Avon Moore. Oh, yeah. I love that album. And there's yeah. a, especially the first track, Loop the Lie. Oh, yeah, yeah. making that song or making that album or anything here's like the that. problem here's the i mean i'm on it right uh yeah. i'm in the liner notes i believe uh here the, here's the problem with with brian records for over the last 20 years is that there's stuff on that that i don't know you go in and i go in and i play on five songs uh-huh. and then i go back a year later and i play on five songs and i go back and then you go and play and go oh, hang on i've already played on this one and yeah. then you're and so I don't know. And and by the time it's finished, there's probably me and there's probably bits of me and bits of Marcus Miller and bits of Neil Jason and bits of, so I can't, and to be honest, I'd have to, if I listened to the album, I could probably tell you. Okay. Um, but, okay. but no, I can't, I mean, no, I mean, I love work. I did some work with Brian during actually the first lockdown. Um, I know it was, it was, no, it was, when was it? Oh no, no, it was the second lockdown. It was, uh, before Christmas. And it was great. I always love going into the studio with Brian. He, he's, he still has this enthusiasm and excitement. Good. And, you know, for a song he's been working on for 10 yes. years, and he's yes. still like, yay. Okay. Um, and so, and, and it, but you just don't, you just, it's, I can't really remember. I'd have to, if you okay. briefed me on this, I could have gone and listened. No, no I have a problem. Fine. Like, for instance, someone asked me, people keep asking me to do, you know, my lockdown licks videos I've been doing in lockdown uh-huh. when I break down. And people, quite a few people have asked me to do a track off the michael hutchins album yes uh and the thing is i've gone through and i've listened to it and i know i'm on there but i can't tell which bits are me i can't find and i don't think i'm on a whole song yeah oh really (laughs) yeah i don't that's one of the ones i was going to ask you about too okay yeah no i don't think no i think most of the bass is danny saber because you know danny's brilliant and it was danny who got me in 
that happens. In fact, um, you, I know, I think you did one of those videos with Tim Pierce. Yeah. Tim Pierce. For the, yeah, I had for Tim the on here a few years ago and he couldn't remember anything. And it, it was, <laughs> I mean, it, he couldn't be a nicer no, I, guy. I can remember. I generally am very good at remembering, you know, yes. I'm, uh, he I, I took, was not, uh, I, I would ask him things and I, I don't know, was I on that? I don't know. And you realize for a guy like him, especially it's just an assembly line. He's doing, he's playing bits, hundreds of them a day. He doesn't know if they're going to be used. He doesn't know necessarily even sometimes what song they're going to be used for. So no, exactly. Had, and half the, and very often you didn't even know who the artist is. You yes. know, you got a producer you work with. He got, yeah. I used to do tons of stuff for Stephen Haig. Back there is a nice, and I don't know, you know, and then I, I, and I don't, and then people said, wow, you're on this album. I'm like, am I? I don't know, you know. Okay. Um, so that may but, come up a lot. I mean, I but, but with, about. yeah, with, with no, no, but this is particularly to Brian, especially, is that, um, I mean, I remember because Chester and I were given all the composite multi tracks from the Boys and Girls album. And so, and there's things like, there's one guitar solo where I think it starts as Chester, then it goes into David. And then it goes into Mark Knopfler and then it goes back to David. Then it goes to Chester. And then, and this is like one solo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. I guess you could do that back then. Um, ah, those are the days. Yeah. Yes, they are. Oh, well, you know what? Okay. I was going to ask you about Pink Floyd, but I think we, we, let's start with even how you started rock on tours. You and Gary, did you know each other before? Oh no, we're best. Sausage? We're best. We're, we're, we're yeah, 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 yeah. That's. I mean, that's kind okay. of why that happened. Now, okay. Gary and I have a history going back to. Um, I'd known Gary sort of from afar, but I was actually really good mates with Steve Dagger, Spandau's manager, for uh, who I met through Icehouse. Okay. Uh, we because we were all on Chrysalis, and Steve and I, and we were neighbours in Notting Hill, and 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 we we would. I always always loved Steve, so and. So when Gary was making his first solo record, this was back in 92, 93, uh, Steve asked me if I'd go and help him put it together, just sort of go and be a sympathetic ear and pick musicians for him, you know, because the guy's just been in a band for yeah. 15 years, you know. So, sure. and then, and we just absolutely hit it off, fell in love with it. So we, because uh, I realized we had this shared love of theater and musicals and mm. stuff like that. So we actually ended up writing two musicals together. Really? Uh, one of which was a th yeah. One of which was uh, one was never went anywhere. One was, um, uh, but one was ended up being part of an was for a national theatre schools project called Connections, and it's still oh. performed at schools all really? over the country, which is yeah. Wow. And they, they lots of top people. Do it. it was us with this great playwright called Snoo Wilson. It's called The Bed Bug, and it was based on a a, a play, a nineteen twenties play by Mayakovsky. Which the music, the original music, was done by Shostakovich. So we're like, "Whoa, don't want to hear that! Don't want to hear that!" So yeah, so and we've we just been really, really good friends ever since. And and uh, we we're always trying to think of things to do together. And it's just like, well, what, what, what could we do? What start an eighties band? I mean, do what? So when Sources came up, it was and Gary had become friends with Nick through me. So you know, and it was just, and it was perfect. And it's, it's been so great for Gary and, and yes. you could absolutely hear how good it's been for him on his, with his new solo album. Cause it's okay. so fantastically assured and, you know, his singing and everything. Yes. So that's been great. And also just, that's why the sources is the best fun thing in the world. And because, Gary, and, and because we're always, you know, and we're all the, the, the sources is a bunch of music nerds. And we sit on the tour bus, just, 
sort of forever asking questions, telling stories about famous music. And like we had on the European tour, we had this box set of the old grey whistle test. And we were just watching the old grey whistle test. And you said, yes, but what about? And we just thought, well, wouldn't it be great to ask to actually ask all those yeah. people, you know, yeah. it's basically ask all the questions that you'd ask. You want to ask someone if you saw them at a party, but you know, yeah. they tell you to just go away. <laughs> right. right. Isn't and, then, and it was started, it had nothing way? to do with COVID. It was all pre COVID. Oh, was we were it? just doing okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. We were just okay. doing it. And then lockdown happened. And it, I mean, what's been interesting, I don't know if you found this, like the whole thing of podcasts has changed lockdown where they used to be certainly in the UK, they were 45 minutes. Because yeah. 45 minutes is the length of the average commute. Oh, really? And that was yeah. the thinking. That apparently, well, that's apparently what ends up being comfortable because it turns out right. that's what people liked was 45 yeah. minutes because that's how long they're on the train. Um, and then since the lockdowns, everyone working at home, everyone was complaining it wasn't long enough. And we were like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we'll go all day. So, yeah, um, yeah so that, that's why they're now an hour or actually often a, more than an hour. Yeah. Mine... Um... I try to keep them to an hour, but they rarely, it depends. I, I mean, someone like you, we could do this for hours. You know what I mean? Well, I'm very happy to do a two-parter if you want. Okay. Well, mm. um, we might have to do that. So as long as you don't ask I, me, to... I mean, all your questions have all been good. You know, I've done a couple oh, of things for thank people you. ask dickish questions. <laughs> oh, we haven't even gotten started. Are you kidding me? I've got like 20 <laughs> more things here. Um, now I have to admit, Gary doesn't strike me as the most obvious person to play the early Pink Floyd stuff. And it seems like on your on your on the podcast sometimes you guys rib each other about prog rock is he more of a muso than we would have guessed yes this is the okay. funny thing you know what's been a really running joke through uh throughout the tour is that in all our reviews and uh -huh. everything there's this big thing it's always who knew gary kemp yeah. could play guitar like that right and it, and it which at first was really nice yeah. probably you know but it's true i mean you know gary's an 80s boy you know he's, yeah. he's used to playing like you know we we he does that thing, and um, and he is, but he's he's actually a great guitar player, and he, you know, very much of of the Ronson school. And it, after a while, you can imagine, just, who knew Gary Kemp is like, yeah, all right, I've been playing guitar for thirty years. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that um, because the thing is that Gary's that like crucial two years older than me, uh, which in the seventies that's a lifetime. And so it just means, for instance, no, no. Yeah, okay. no so why. when we talk someone like Richard Thompson. Ooh. for instance. And Gary can say, oh yeah, because I used to go to folk clubs, 74, 75, and I'm just too young to have done that. I get it. So don't you know? Yes. So he's got that. And I he was that, those because he was those two years younger, he was kind of there when Foxtrot and all those albums came out. And yeah. of course, you know, because of course, because Gary is, you know, like me, he's a West End Wendy. He's a very theatrical. Of course he loves prog. Of course right. he loves Genesis. Right. Uh, but the fact that, but, and because Gary is a very, very, you know, very studious, meticulous character. And so if he knows about something, he knows about something. Really? Okay. Yeah. I could tell. And it, yeah. 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 That comes across in the, your interviews. I discovered Rock on Tours when one of my friends um, told me that you had Roland on because Tears for Fears are, uh, they're another one of my all-time favorite. Really players. proud of that, by the way. I yes. think we really got some stuff out of him. That, uh, yes. And that he doesn't do a lot of interviews. No. And so um, I, uh, I was, first of all, insanely jealous. But secondly, <laughs> I just thought this is gold because I, you don't hear Roland's. Sometimes when Roland and Kurt will do like a classic album or something like that, you get to hear from Roland. But otherwise, you don't hear Roland's perspective solo right. by himself very often. And you guys got that. 
That was yeah, amazing. Good, thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, that was, yeah. He recently remarried uh, a woman who lives in my neighborhood it, here in Denver. So I'm hoping I might bump into him at the grocery store one of these times, maybe. Oh, right. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but anyway. Uh, okay. Denver. So I like Denver. I, I sat in a, uh, I remember finding a very cool clothes shop in Denver in 1994 on the Pink Floyd tour. I sat in a bar all afternoon and watched the OJ uh, low speed car really? chase in Denver. Yeah. Wow. Oh, what a story. That's great. <laughs> that is great. Um, okay. So let's talk, let's get, let's do Pink Floyd then. So you, right. how does it become, how do you get the gig playing? You're not on momentary lapse of reason, but when that band no. goes out on tour and that's where delicate sound of thunder album comes from, that's where you, yeah, that's where you come in. And did you marry Richard Wright's daughter later? Is that oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Much later. Yeah. Yeah. I know no, this is a, this is a ridiculous thing. Yeah. He only got the gig cause he's married to, well, I just wanted to, it's like, I'm just yeah, it's joining like, no, the dots. How do you think here. I fucking met her? I know. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. sure which came first. Yeah, no, I know. No, I, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely what happened. Uh, no, I met Gala in Australia, in fact. Okay. In, um, but uh, yes, and uh, funny enough, because Tony Levin was was going to do the tour, and thank God he didn't, because he could never have been attached to the band in the way that I was. Yeah. You know, he would always just be Tony Levin. I mean, yeah. and, you know, I, I've done lots of other stuff, but I. I like the way that I'm attached to them, you know, and mm -hmm. I can, I get love and hate thrown at me, but that's fine, you know. Right. So, yeah, uh, and I got the gig. Uh, well, I mean, David had actually, David was basically sort of asking everyone. Really? I, think. I, get, I keep on being, oh, yeah, I wish I'd taken that Floyd gig. And I used to get really upset about it, but it's like, well, you know what? Pff, more for you. Because what happened was, because uh, uh, David, because David was, uh, was he was like the coolest of the old rock stars uh, apart from say Pete Townsend I'd say in that rock stars you was associated with Chelsea and Mayfair and kind of just and but David was Notting Hill David hung around in Notting Hill his friends were you know, he was very very cool he was very very cool and very hip so we had a sim I used to bump into him at things occasionally or I'd see him at things and you know get a good look at my shoes but um so that there was a sort of vague connection there and then he used uh -huh. to come in and play with Brian and there's also, but he was producing Dream Academy. That was yes. the first time I met him. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So Dream Academy was the original connection. But then I went on, and it's so funny, I should never go on holiday to Thailand because this shit always happens when I go to Thailand. I went on holiday to Thailand. While I was away, David did, there was an Amnesty International concert, a Secret Policeman's Ball, which David did with Kate Bush. Oh. And when I got back from Thailand, there's all these messages on the answer phone from David asking me to do that gig and i'm like what no, no. way no, no way. <laughs> it's like that was my one chance to play and ken because of course kate bush hadn't played live since 1980 yes, and she you right. know, it was like and with kate bush oh. and they did running up that hill oh oh <laughs> what a kick in the and nuts so Ouch. then a few months later, so then this new magazine Q had just come out. Oh, I loved Q. Uh, yeah, Q, Q was Q. brilliant, and it was. In fact, I remember it was issued. One of the first issues had had uh, Roger Waters leaning up against Morrissey on the front cover. <sighs> Separate photos, but wow. um, and there was a thing about Pink Floyd putting an album out, getting back together, and I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Wow, you know, uh -huh. and thought no more about it. And then I get a call from David, and it was classic David, and it started the way it's gone on, which is that he knows exactly how to bait me. You also, uh -huh. I've always been the whipping boy and it's, you know, learned to live with it. And, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, 
he just called up and said, oh, hi, guy. I don't know if you're, but, you know, Pink Floyd came back. I said, yeah, yeah, I saw about that. Yeah. So I think he said, yeah, well, two questions. He said, we're going on tour for 13 months. I'm like, fuck. He said, two questions. Are you interested? And are you available? <laughs> <laughs> Did you say yes and, and yes? No, I, no, I tried to do the, I, I, so obviously, yeah, I thought, yeah, like muster some yeah. sort of interest, I'm sure. And, and I, I went to, um, and yeah, yeah, I'm available. He went, oh, you're not working then. <laughs> went, no, no, I mean, obviously I'd, I, I'd, I'd have to move things around. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's like he had me straight, you know, so. Right. And that was it. And, you know, my audition was just singing Run Like Hell. the bass i remember getting the bass out of the case he went oh you can do that really he yeah. was more concerned with whether you could sing run like all Hell. he cared about was he he needed someone at the front of the stage next to him to be able to do the vocal on run like hell at the end he had everything oh, else wow. cut. that's all he really worried about oh my gosh okay. and i'd actually been up all night i'd stupid you know, i'd been up all night on a bender when i turned up at the studio and i probably wouldn't have been able to done it to do it if i'd had a good night's sleep so when right. i thought i'd completely ruined everything i thought i can't fucking believe i've done this you know yeah <laughs> Should have realized then I was a budding alcoholic. Um, and <laughs> that comes and, later. But, yeah, but unfortunately, yes, exactly. But unfortunately, it was my habits were reinforced. It's like, see what yeah. happens when you yeah. stay up all night True. getting True. One of my so we have Patreon supporters, and when I told them that I was going to be talking with you, um, a couple people asked if you they had said ever... we're not paying this month. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, I mean. You've gotten a really good response from our Patreon there because they love the podcast so much. And when Iva came out uh, in January, um, I had a number of people say, well, now you've got to go talk to Guy Pratt because he'll tell oh. you the other side of the story. So I'm glad we're finally doing this. I um, And I'm sorry I had to stalk you on Facebook or something, but that's just how it goes sometimes. That's fine. No, listen, I, I, I mean, it's the, the, the subterfuge that Gary and I employ to get you know because we don't we don't oh, yeah. go through the official route because the whole thing is you know we're like you we're not promo right the whole thing is, is we say well he's not promoting anything else. we don't want them promoting anything else yes because we don't want to talk about your new album exactly but frankly if you're not taylor swift no one cares about your new album <laughs> it's so true <laughs> that is so true so anyway some of my patreon people asked me if you had ever interfaced with roger waters do you ever talk um, to him have you ever gotten oh, yeah, a read yeah, yeah. on no, how I've, he I've felt on about stage, you i've been on a stage with him um I had to put together, I mean, the hardest balancing act ever. I actually put together a band for Roger and David to play together as a, at a hope at a Palestine charity 
thing because that's the you know i remember and it was this thing i associated with i do every year they always have great musicians doing it uh, you know, I've done it with Paddy Smith and Florence the Machine, all sorts of wow. things, chili peppers. On this thing, hoping for Palestine. Well, you know, it's Palestine, Palestine, Palestine children. Come on, you know, yeah, you've got to. Yeah. And and someone st- and the person organising it said, "Oh, we've got David Kilmer and Roger Waters doing it this year." I went, "No, you haven't." <laughs> <laughs> Don't be preposterous. Like, yeah, they they are. Yeah. And it's like fuck. Um, and it turned out it was going to be held at this girl, Jemima Goldsmith's big fancy new country house. And, you know, and obviously because it's a charity thing, it's lots of rich people paying a lot of money. That's sure. fine. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Which is interesting because apparently Nick had said, oh, I'll come and play. And David said, no, because then it's Pink Floyd. And I'm not uh, having it in the press that Pink Floyd got back together for some smart. Toff's housewarming. Yeah. Yeah. That makes <laughs> so, sense. Um, yeah. yeah. But the funny thing is, apparently the joke is, is that uh, I, I can't remember if it was David or Roger. One of them had stipulated, said, yes, I'll do it. But the deal breaker is they have we have to do a duet of to know him is to love him. <laughs> which what? apparently which apparently was a Pink Floyd soundcheck number. Really? Yeah, apparently back in the very early days, they used to do to know him is to love him as a soundcheck number. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and uh so I then had this balancing act of trying to put together of of of, of having to absolutely balance the band between David. So I Chester Cayman, who toured with Roger, but was uh-huh. beloved of David. Andy Newmark, of course, who plays on David's records and did lots of Roger's stuff. Um, Harry Waters, great. Um, so it was all, you know, all had to be balanced out. And uh, and the thing is, this to know him is to love him was like, great idea on paper. The reality uh-huh. is it didn't really work because they couldn't work out the harmonies and everyone's voices has changed and, you know. Sure. Um, but it was still a, it was still a fantastic thing, and yeah, I mean, I've you know personally, I've always got on fine with her. I was at his daughter's wedding, and of course, then he came and he he performed with the sources. He did set the controls for the Heart of the Sun. Oh, I mean, okay. I have no, I have no, and and the funny thing is though, Roger, like uh, he he was asked by uh, one of the papers, or might be Rolling Stone or someone, about what was it like uh, doing the sources show, and he said. Um, Oh yeah, it was great. Blah blah blah, and and he said that guy Pratt's really good. I mean, he really knows this stuff from all his years with Gilmore. And Whoa. it's one of those things because it's. Really, I reread it about five hundred times, yes. looking for the dig. Yeah, thinking there's there's got to be a dig. How can there? Yes. Like, and I still can't find it, but I, wow. it's got to be there. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. So I guess so. Then I don't know. I don't want to read too much into this, but I'm guessing Roger and Nick then are cool. And it's Roger and David that are not cool. Uh, there's all sorts. Of, I don't really want to get into that. Okay. What, all, all up, oh, no, I'll tell you what I will get into is that, yeah, there was a very clear axis in the band. Yeah. Is that, um, which was David, David and Rick, you know, okay. who were the musical bit of the band. Uh-huh. And they were, and, and as you know, we know from 2006, you know, I mean, David loved Rick and, and the two of them together. That's what that 2006 tour was just the, best swan song rick yeah. Wright could have ever had yes and you know obviously very very i've got a very personal you know my son is rick Wright's grandson so right. um uh you know i i loved that man dearly 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 yeah. and uh uh and so so th- they were two acts that you know roger and nick were friends david and david and rick were friends i mean that's yeah. you know and that's okay. as far as i'll go okay that makes sense um all right let's see we should uh, let's talk about Robert Palmer then. Oh, you come in now. I, I mean, I've listened to enough of your episodes that I can piece together some of this stuff. So you come in on Riptide, and yeah. 
Is this because how does this happen? Is this do you know Bernard Edwards somewhere? Well, yeah, yes, Bernard. Okay, let's start in the beginning, okay. which is when we're doing these festival when we're on the Bowie tour with Ice House, uh-huh. uh, and we're doing these German festivals right now um, with Crosby Stills Nash. Robert Palmer is on that bill. Okay. Now at that point, I'd always been I'd always been a massive Robert Palmer fan. Yeah. At that point, and he's just put out Pride, which I fucking loved and still do it's an amazing piece of work it's a completely electro album but every note on it is played by a musician that's what really yeah it's that's so interesting okay so i it's interesting you say that because i just talked to phil brown the producer phil brown first person i was ever in a 24 track studio with really okay i was in the studio with him the day john lennon was shot whoa no way. <laughs> yeah, when I was wow. when I was 18. Yeah, with this guy, David Mallon. The first oh. proper recording sessions I ever wow. did in my life. Yeah. So Phil and I, I read his book and I went back and listened to every Robert Palmer album. And to me, Pride is when it starts to dip. Those first six albums before Pride yeah. are so diverse and wonderful to me. And Pride, other than You're In My System, which I love that song a lot. I but, love that song, yeah. Um, which he didn't write, which is actually no, the system. That's yeah. that's the system. I've had David well, that's Frank so funny. Is that, but, although it's incredible, the idea that Robert Palmer didn't write that song right. is extraordinary. Which is yes. a bit, it's, it's kind of like, his, it's like there's no way out of here off the first David Gilmore album. It's like, yeah. how True. did David Gilmore not write that song? True, true. So it's interesting that you like Pride so much because that's to me where it starts to get a little iffy. And then yeah, but you've got to remember, sort of the, I'm a 21. Okay. Yeah, but I, I'm. This is a current thing, and this is, you know, he, it's Good thrusting point. modern electro, yes. you know, hit. Good point. It's, you know, cool. So it had all Good that point. going. Okay, and anyway, so, so I'm this, yeah. So anyway, so that album's just come out. We're on this tour, and I go sort of go and slavishly stand at the side of the stage and watch Robert every day, and I'm like, fuck, I can't believe. And then, and then one day we're doing our set in the afternoon. And I look over and there's Robert Palmer at the side of the stage and he's checking me out. No way. And I'm like, what? Wow. And 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 then the next day I'm on stage and there is Robert Palmer again, checking me out. Wow. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then we get to Berlin and we're all staying in the same hotel, right? It's it's just fantastic. There's all these uh-huh. old hippies, you know, there's all the Crosby Stills and Nash lot and, and David, but that's the, and Bowie's come to see us. And then Bowie comes to the hotel to have dinner with Robert Palmer. I'm like, oh, right. Which is so, and we all, it's quite funny. I remember we got lined up. It was like the Royal Variety performance when you meet the Queen. We got uh-huh. lined up and David Bowie shook all our hands. Right. Went like, you know, couldn't right. care less. Although, the one thing I always remember is he was wearing an Anthony Price suit and so was I. All <laughs> roads go back to like, Anthony Price the suit. Pale. There's the pail. <laughs> Everyone's in there. Johnson's fucking cheapery. <laughs> oh, it's genius. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, so uh, they Bowie and Rob Parr on this table. So I sit down and I'm pretending to chat up the girl from the record company. I probably am trying to chat up the girl from the record company. But at the same time, I've got, got myself, we're sitting there drinking and I'm just trying to lip read Robert Palmer and David. You're just thinking, what did David uh-huh. Bowie and Robert Palmer no say kidding. at dinner? No kidding. And anyway, then I go pretend, then I sort of forget about it and let them get on with their meal. And there's this big potted palm behind the girl who I'm sitting talking to. Uh-huh. And suddenly this head comes through the palms and it goes, you're the guy with the little stick bass, aren't you? You've got a fan going on and we need to talk. And then he's gone and it's Robert Palmer. No way. Yeah. Just 
pushes aside literally, the lid. Literally, literally through that it, is so cool. The potted plant. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. and um, yeah, and then so that over the next few shows, I got we hung out. I got to know him, and he invites me to Nassau. Oh, he says you got to you come to the house. We'll hang out and we'll write music. I'm just well, wow, wow, and, and I and he gave me his phone number, and oh I'm thinking gosh. that's. It's, it's like that can't be his phone number. He hasn't given me his phone number. <laughs> that's Robert Palmer's you know I mean? phone that's, number. That's what, he hasn't given me his phone number. Yeah, and um, and I did. So I went to Nassau, and I and 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 we just wrote songs. We wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote all day, every day. I didn't get to see any, you know. To, yeah, it was just heaven. And we just stayed up all night. And we drank and joked, but and it was, you know, I mean, he was such an amazing character. Wow. And and in fact, here's the thing: we we and we'd had this one song. He had this brand new um, Sony digital recorder. There was a big right two track digital recorder. It's called the F1, I think. And it had all the because of course it was digital. It had all these new commands on it, like swing search and go to zero. So always says we uh-huh. see. And I kept with this joke. I said, why don't we write a song called Go to Zero and put it out under the name Swing Search? Right, as, as the idea of this band yeah. looking for their swing. Yeah. And um, it went okay. So we wrote this song as a sort of joke on you know around this uh-huh. riff I had. And, and the thing is they were, um, there was a new desk being put in at because he lived literally opposite compass point studios, literally opposite. Yeah. If you wanted a pint of milk, you had to go seven miles down the road. If you wanted to record an album, you fell out the front door. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and they were putting it and he said, look, they're not gonna be able to hire it out. So we're going to go in and they're going to let me, um, you know, and we'll try it out. We'll record this song. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) all right. Yeah. But then, it, of course, it was the Caribbean, and it soon comes, soon comes, soon comes. And then he went, look, fuck it. I know you've got to go home. So he just booked and paid for the other studio. And we went and recorded the song Go to Zero. Then yeah. he gets a call from John Taylor saying, we're doing this band project in New York. And the idea is we're going to have loads of different singers. And um, we'd love you to come and do a song. To, if you've got any songs coming. He went, okay. So when I leave, Robert flies to New York. Uh, and meets and he plays them go to zero at which point they go okay that's going on the album yes. and you're the singer yes wow. i think he also sang got it on and so then i get a phone call from robert going you're not going to believe this <laughs> <laughs> then robert being robert so they're doing this album at the power station in new york right with bernard uh-huh. edwards uh-huh. and he and he goes guy look um uh, John's just not getting the bass right, and uh, he's going to have to play it on the album. But I need you to come in and play it, so he's got something to play along to. I was like, "What?" He said, "Yeah, it's best if no one really knows you're here." So I get flown over to New York, no. and basically smuggled into the power station with Bernard Edwards. Right? I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm 21. I'm 21 years old." Oh. And I'm put in front of Bernard Edwards, and which is, and and I had this thing right that I always used to do, and I forgot, which is that when I plugged in, uh, you know, you just noodle around to get your sound uh-huh. together, and I had this automatic thing. I didn't think of where I always played everybody dance. Really? And I just started playing it without thinking. And suddenly this big boy goes, shut up, motherfucker. Make me feel old. I was like, oh my God, I'm playing it in front of Bernard Edwards. Oh man. <laughs> wow. Oh wow. And so that's, that's okay. So what are you playing then that John is are you just playing like dum, dum, some dum, like dum, a heart or something? Well it's yeah, no, no, it's some it's go to zero, the song I wrote. Oh yeah, oh I see. Friends. <laughs> 
I didn't know if he was asking. But it's just very, it's Got incredibly it. yes. simple, but it's just. Dun, yes. dun, 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 yeah. Dun, okay. Dun, dun, dun. But you know, you can imagine Robert singing that. Robert was so sure. about timing and nuance. Yes. I love that song. It just had too, to have those way. snatches. Yeah. Wow. Um, and on the original demo, by the way, there's a line when it goes, um, Andy Taylor, Rue, go to zero. And it goes, woo. And then Andy starts playing a guitar solo, right? Really? On the original demo, on the original demo, it was red. It, <laughs> The line we came up with, somebody, most of it was drunk and gibberish. Uh-huh. Uh, the line we came up with was uh, Adrian Ballou go to zero. <laughs> and we stuck in an Adrian Ballou guitar solo no that Robert way. had from some tracks he'd done with Adrian. No way. So literally, oh. Adrian Ballou go to zero. <laughs> oh, I want to hear that. Obviously, I've lost that cassette. But so anyway, so yeah, so that album happens. And then of course I go back and I get this big publishing deal and it's all fun. Yeah. And, and that's when I turn. And so downstairs uh, at the power station, upstairs, they're doing the power station. In the studio downstairs, Bill Laswell is producing Mick Jagger uh, on his first solo album. Got it. With Dave Jordan engineering. Well, who, didn't course, Nile would, Rogers work on She's the Boss? The first no, Mick no, Jagger? Th- that, um yeah, there was about three producers. No, I think Nile did the second. There was about two or three producers. Okay, I was going to say Nile downstairs with Mick. No, no, Bernard no, no. It was, it, it, no, it was, it was Bill okay. Laswell who was. You know, this this is okay. rocket time. So Bill yeah. is super hot at this point. Okay. And yeah, I met Dave Jordan. So I think it was actually at the premiere of Stop Making Sense. And it's uh, you go to New York and everything's insane. Robert yeah. took me to the premiere of Stop Making Sense. I mean, wow, wow. it was wow. amazing. Um, wow. And. Uh, uh, in fact, there's a very funny story. I ended up having a mad night out with John Taylor, which culminated, which thanks to when I was rehearsing with Pink Floyd in Toronto, uh-huh. uh, we were all lined by the pool one day and Duran Duran came through town supporting David Bowie on the Glass Spider Tour. And we're lined by the pool and Duran Duran will come down in their trunks and John Taylor walks up and goes, oh, hello, guy. Last time I saw you, you spilt your drink on the blow. <laughs> <laughs> What was, a party pooper. Yeah. <laughs> there goes the blow. It's quite funny. Tim Rubin. Rennick referred to me as James Bond for the next two weeks. <laughs> oh, Bond. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Wow. So then that's why Bernard brings you in on Riptide. Yeah, then, then it was. So then when okay. he, so when, when uh, Robert does Riptide, Bernard gets rid of Robert's band. Uh-huh. And says, you know, it's it's my New York cats if you want me to do it, you know. So it's like it's Tony Thompson, Jeff Bova, uh, Eddie Martinez, you know, I mean, amazing. Uh-huh. But then apparently for some reason it goes, that English kid of yours, I like him. Let's get him in. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if it's because he heard you playing his song on the bass to warm up. I don't know, but I don't know. Maybe. I, and I also don't know if maybe that was Robert being nice. I, don't, I mean, there was, but there was really was no need or reason for me to be there. Yeah. You know, someone wanted me there and it was, which was just amazing. And I mean, it was terrifying, terrifying, you know, like with the big, I've never felt like such an underqualified kid, you know, really, but you kill it. Now 
are you on? It does. I didn't mean to turn you on. No, I'm not. No, I'm on. The only thing I'm on is um, is discipline of love. That's what I wonder. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Is there anything I'm on? I, mean, I played on about four songs that didn't end up on the album. But okay. the point is, the point is that bass credit. It says bass Bernard Edwards and Guy Pratt. That's I right. should have just huge. quit then. That's huge. Now you played more with Robert, but I don't think you're on Heavy Nova, right? No, no, because that was Pink Floyd time. I was off, and Robert and I oh. sort of lost. We lost touch for a while. Yeah, when he moved to Switzerland, because Robert was amazing. He just suddenly you suddenly get a call going. Uh, you know, hi, I'm listen, I've got a table booked at so and so. And and uh funny thing with Robert was because he never lived in London, he never went to the London restaurants. Oh. You'd always go to great restaurants, but places you it, it's like some and you know, they tend to be very expensive, right? But yeah. like somewhere you've never heard of. <laughs> Do you know you know how it is in any yeah. city, there's there's five restaurants, right? Sure. That everyone sure. goes to. Right. And uh, but he he always took you to restaurants you just didn't know. <laughs> Wow. And they call you up and go, I've got a dinner a table booked at eight. And it's like, oh, hello. You know, I haven't seen you for yeah. 18 months. Yeah. And then, and of course, you drop everything and go. But didn't you play on other stuff like Don't Explain? Oh, <clears throat> tons. Yeah. And I did. Oh, Don't Explain was fantastic. Yeah. I co wrote uh, two or three songs on that. I thought you did. What? Uh, um, no, because I used to go out and stay with Robert, in, um, which I used to love. Luxury Siege, Gara and I used to call that. Oh, because man. basically he, he didn't really like you leaving the house because he just figured they had all the recording equipment, instruments, drugs, cocktail equipment, Everything. gourmet food, firearms yeah. <laughs> that anyone could possibly gosh. want. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but they didn't really like you. And we, go, we just want to go and have a look. You know, this is Switzerland. We want to go and yeah. look around. Really? Oh, <laughs> all right, uh, we'll stay here then. <laughs> what are you going to look at? So how was, what was Robert? I mean, he had been this really well-respected almost kind of a fringe artist and then addicted to love shoots him into the stratosphere. Heavy Nova kind of keeps him there. But then after that, it starts, it's, it, it gets weird after that. His career, he goes into like show tunes for a while and then it's blues records. He never quite finds himself yeah, after said, that. He never, I, I think part of it, it was uh, because he was so much in control of him. So he was, so, I mean, I've never met anyone quite like Robert. Uh. In the, I mean, I've met people who are as assured and in control of their destiny and everything that, you know, and, um, but he just wasn't like anyone else. His way of yeah. looking at everything was like, he didn't talk like anyone else. He didn't, uh. you know, you know, it was his, 
you know, I mean, like I said, the, the chapter on him in my book, it opens up with my, my favorite quotes of his. He used to say, it's just, I'm cultivating faulty syntax. I intend to be a legend. What the fuck does that even mean? But it's brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. That's great. <laughs> wow. Wow. And, um, okay. You know, so he just wasn't like it. So I don't know. There was only so much you could tell him, I guess. Yeah. In terms. And I was like, for instance, because yeah, a lot of the sounds on Don't Explain are like, I mean, Tio Massaro was producing it, which is on, on paper an amazing thing. You're like, wow, I get to be in a studio with Tio Massaro. But he was wasn't really doing much and it's kind of an okay for the sort of more boss and ovary and kind of swing ballady old school stuff. Yeah. But it's like, you know, when you put a metal tune in front of Tia Massaro. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It just gets weird after that. And it's a little sad. I think you mentioned, I, I, I man, the list here, it just keeps going. Okay. So <laughs> tell me about working with Roland on elemental. For okay, I, I don't remember that much about it. I mean, we talked about it in Rock and Turn. I I can't remember why I got the call. Huh. I think I just I had this I, this sort of brief moment I had where I was sort of almost at, in, in that sort of Pino school where if you're doing an album, you have to call me at some point. Okay, you know what I mean? It was like I had I had a very brief period where okay. I was one of one of those guys. Yeah, and so I drove all the way down to Bath to his place from London, and. Um, and it was quite funny. He was in a funny place and, and he had this beautiful big barn. I remember it was lovely set up. I don't remember much about doing the song. Huh. And then, um, and he, I remember he had this, this big computer set up. He had two screens and he was busy doing really detailed astrological charts on them. And he did my star chart for me while I was there. Really? So I'm interested in such things, but okay. yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. So you don't well, remember much about what you played on, on Elemental. No, but the funny thing was uh, when it came up, because I've always kind of forgotten about it and I didn't yeah. even know if I was in it. And, and, then, and then a lot of stuff, when I started doing my lockdown licks, you know, people start yeah. asking, and a lot of people ask for that song. And, oh, and I went and put it on and it starts off. It's like, oh shit, that's not me. That's a sin. <laughs> oh no, this is really embarrassing. It's like Rodin's put my name on because he feels bad, whatever. But then it gets to the middle section uh, and it is me. You know, thank God, and it's quite me. Which song are we talking about? Break it down um, again. Uh, um, break it down. No, it's not break it. No, I'm not on that. No, what's uh, Mr. Pessimista? Okay. Song I'm okay. I don't know if I played on anything else. Can't remember. Okay. But yeah, so like, oh, thank God I'm on it. And and Ro when we interviewed him, Roland seemed to remember it fondly. You know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back and listen so to that again to remind myself. It's very now, good. I mean, it's a it's a good album. Yes, He's great. I love that yeah, album. He's brilliant. Yeah. They're one of my favorites. Um, I have a 
I just did you ever um, compete for jobs with Phil Spalding? Oh God, Phil! It's quite funny. Phil sent me a message the other day. Uh, really? Not that I know of, but according to him, apparently okay. I got I got lots he, of jobs because he couldn't make it or he turned them down. Because yeah, he was too true. wasted. Yeah, I love Phil. He's been on here a couple of times. I, but, I love Phil. I, I, yeah. I'm very, very. Fun. And no, Phil was actually. In fact, he was on that German tour festival tour we did he we um i met him when he was back i think it was when he was in the original mirrors and he was like the first kind of grown-up professional bass pair i knew so i was always kind of slightly in awe of him for Uh, that and probably still am you know really uh you know really look up to the guy i mean i i I love phil i love his work yeah yeah so he was on that he was playing for mike oldfield on that journey yes yeah so yeah so phil phil will always sort of sit a couple of steps Uh you know above me yeah i mind (laughs) i know what you mean that's great i love phil um, okay, last thing. Tell us the story about how you almost became a member of the Smiths. Oh God, <laughs> that was well. Again, that was through uh, Brian Ferry. That was because Johnny oh. turned up to because um, Brian had this very good idea that um, the Smiths put out Big Big Mouth Strikes Again, uh-huh. fantastic. Which had the B side was an instrumental called Money Changes Everything, mm. right? And um, Brian had the idea, or someone at the label had the idea of getting Brian to write a song over the top of it. And we thought that's, which is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way of tapping into all those lonely tear stained bedsits. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and we we're working on the song for it and it never, and I don't know if it was always the plan, but there was something, but it has this amazing intro, beautiful faded in volume pedal chords, beautiful bit of Johnny. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Chess just wasn't kind of getting, and you know, Chess will be the first to admit that. And, uh, and, Brian said, oh, well, why I'll get Johnny to come, Johnny Mars to come and play it. And I was really snooty about it. I don't know why. I had a bit of a thing about it. It was one of those things where the Smiths were just Morrissey. Until yeah. you listened, you didn't know, you know? And, uh, you know, but once you listened, poor. Um, yeah. And so Johnny came down to the studio. And I'll never forget. It was one of the, I remember I was sitting there reading the paper, re- reading The Guardian, probably ruffled it and tutted. Uh-huh. And I remember the second he started playing, I remember dropping my paper and running across the room to look at his hands because really? I was literally, where is the other guy? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is that- yes. Johnny's one of the greatest guitarists ever. Where it, He's the flip side of the same coin as David Gilmoy. The, yeah. They're both orchestras. You yeah. Know, it's, but it's it, I was like, where is the other? And we and and he invited me out that night. So he he knew about me. Um he'd heard my name because Stephen Street, of course, their producer I'd been working with was Stephen Duffy. Mm. And for some reason, Stephen had mentioned, had talked about me. And so it's, this had piqued Johnny's interest. And he invited me around to his flat. And that was it. We, it was just one of those. Yeah. We just, and you know what's sweet is that um, I remember I left there at about seven in the morning. And I think I said to him, you know what, after this, we're either never going to speak to each other again or we're besties for life. And, um, <laughs> And you know he's still there, man. And he's still Good. one of my. He's one of the greatest people that's ever walked on earth. Good. And yeah. So and, and Andy so then Rourke jo- has a drug issue, right? Andy, and well, hang, we're not there yet. Oh, so, okay. Oh, sorry. So what happens is is that so then Johnny is because Johnny has been amazing. Jo- 
Johnny's like just he's got the e-ticket and he's going on all the rides. He's come down to London. He's he's doing I mean, he's literally doing everything. He's working with Ronnie Wood all night. Then he's working with Brian Ferry in the day. Then he's going and doing sessions for Kirsty McCoy. He's, he's there's anything he can do. And then yeah. he's out buying guitars. You know, he's he's just devouring it. It's it was his, you know, so brilliant. He he really reconnected me with something that I needed, was needed, you know. Good. Just basically to remember it was all about music, really. Yeah. And um and and so and then so he foisted me on Kirsty McCall. He's going, you got to get my because Kirsty was doing. You just haven't learned it yet, baby. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you got to have Great my song. mate guy play bass on it. Yeah. So your bass on that song? Yeah, uh, not on Kirsty's version. Yeah. Yeah, no way. That whole, yeah. yeah, days. That's me. I, you know that whole. Yeah. And thanks to me, later on, um, still one of the proudest achievements of my career. On on Kite, on Kirsten McCall's album Kite, there is a yeah. song featuring, and you can read the credits: guitar, David Gilmore, and Johnny Marr. No way. They teamed up on that song thanks to you. Thank wow. you. Right. <laughs> wow. Like you do, but I'm not terrified. 
Okay, I gotta go listen to that. <laughs> um, nice. And anyway, so so we're bouncing around doing all this stuff together, you know, and just, just having the best time. And then, uh-huh. yeah, then, then the whole, and then he's got to go off. He's got to go off and do an American tour and I'm, you know, pining. <laughs> and, and then I get still one of the greatest phone calls I've ever had. Which I remember Johnny calls me up and goes, guy, how do you fancy coming to America to, for three months to play punk rock and fall over? <laughs> That's great. The best. That's the great, best great. time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Not three months, six weeks, I think. So, okay. So uh, then, so, so yeah, so, so the, the Smiths are rehearsing at this place called, so yeah, the thing is that they, Andy's got been busted. Andy was out in the band, then he was back in the band. And, and so I think the idea was, so I was just going to be the stand-in for the American tour, basically because okay. of the drug bust, you you couldn't get an American visa or yeah. it'd be so tricky or expensive or whatever, you know. So I was, you know, I was a fail site safe, really. So yeah. I go down to this place, Stanbridge, which is this rehearsal studio in the middle of nowhere in Sussex. I mean, it's lovely. I live in Brighton now, and its I have to drive past it every time I drive up to London. It's brilliant. <laughs> really? It's absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so I went down and spent a week rehearsing. And then, so the story goes, on the last night, we decided to have this mad bender. And someone, and there were lots of, and it's quite funny because when I wrote about it in my book, I sent it to Johnny. I said, listen, man, I'm going to, because this is actually some where it's quite nice, but you know, there's everyone needs a Boswell, right? And and the thing is, because Johnny's super clean living and super, you know, and and but he was kind of nuts back then. Uh, but um, but you know, everyone was. I mean, he was yeah. 21, 22, you know, what who cares? Sure. And uh, but so the nice thing is, is that I I I can tell you how crazy people are without them having to be boring and tell you how crazy they were. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm 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 the bo- I'm his Boswell. Yes. So, <laughs> Because right, when I sent him the stuff I'd written, I said, John, I know, you know, I hope you don't mind, but I was going to put this stuff in about us having this mad night. And angel that he is, Johnny came back and went, no, that's fine, guy. And in fact, I think you missed out a game of football we had when we were all on acid and you were manager and referee. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, it's great. So anyway, uh, so we have this mad night. We go to bed at about six o'clock in the morning. And I'm upstairs and, you know, it's, you know, it's the eighties. It was uh-huh. Coke involved. And, uh, and I'm doing what they call, what we call lying on the rotisserie uh-huh. <laughs> or lying in state. And I just can't say, I'm just thinking, and, I, and I've got thought, I'm not finished actually. I'm not finished. I bet Johnny hasn't finished. I'm sure Johnny's got, still got a bit in him, you know, to, right. just, just to carry on. Sure. So I got to, to what I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure is Johnny's room. And I sort of tap on the door, go, Johnny, 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 come uh-huh. on, mate, Johnny. Johnny, it's like, there's no way he's asleep. There is no way he's uh-huh. asleep, right? Uh-huh. After half an hour. No way. And I start banging on the door. Johnny, some fucking mate you are. Johnny, what do you call it? <laughs> Bang on the door. It was Morris's room. Oh, no. <laughs> Morris, of course, had gone to bed after his tea and crumpets at eight yes. o'clock the night before. And yeah. I never knew. And apparently he just got up, got on the train, went to London and I wasn't in the Smiths anymore. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Morrissey doesn't strike me as somebody who's playing along with all these games. He's not doing the I never, football. I never, I never really interacted with him. He just wasn't really there at all. I mean, I okay. don't really know if I, I might have just been there to, to, to keep Johnny happy. And I don't Maybe. know. I don't know. Maybe. I think I've got paid or anything for it. But, oh, um, really? Huh. Yeah. But, you know, but you know what? His sweetheart that he is, 
Um, it was my girlfriend, Caroline. When when they got to LA, it was her coincided with her 21st birthday. And um, these two plane tickets turned up from Johnny. Really? So he, yeah, he flew us out to LA to no stay way. with the Smiths and he paid for our hotel to hang out with him for a week and for my girlfriend. Oh, that's just how that's lovely so great. that man is. Yeah, no, Good. that's who he is. So I'm curious then, now this is making sense because did you play on the electronic album, Raise the Pressure? Uh, yes, I did. No, hang on. Which one? I, I'm on a couple of them. I can't remember which one. Not The I only one, one on that the I see one. is Raise the Pressure, which is their oh, okay. second album. Um, and I wondered if this must be the connection then is your friendship with Johnny. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, okay. yeah. And then, um, but then I, when they did the third album, I didn't, did I plan that? I don't think I played on the album, but then I did a load of TV shows oh. and, and it's the greatest band that never was. It was, that's where I met Jed Lynch, who's still one of my favorite, okay. favorite people in the world and the best drummer in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny. I always, he played, well, he played on the black grape album. Come on. Oh, I and, love that album. Yes. You know what I love is that I always said to him, you're the best drummer in the world, mate. It was like, oh, shut up. No, don't be silly. Yeah. I said, you're the best drummer in the world, mate. And then one day he gets the Peter Gabriel gig, which is oh, brilliant. So I just well call then, him and go, see, you are the best drummer yes, in the world. That's validation right there. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So you don't remember much about Raise the Pressure, the electronic uh, I, album. I, no, I remember that. I, I, I remember recording it. I, I remember going up to Johnny's, and I remember he had his basement, his studio in the basement at the time. Okay, and I remember it just okay. being nice. You know, anything with Johnny okay. is just nice. You know. Yeah. Okay. If there's no real story there, then we won't. There, no, there isn't there's really a story. No. Um, okay. Last one, actually. I'm going to ask you because one of our Patreon supporters asked about Kevin Gilbert and Toy Matinee. Yeah, yeah well, that's a big one. Is that it? Is a big okay. One. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, yeah. There's, that's, you know, I mean, it's one of the most important albums of my career. Not in, in, in America, in England, no one knows what it is. In America, that stuff gets me more. That's my Velvet Underground album. Toy Man, you know? eh? Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, only 300 people bought it, but they all started bands. Yes. So, I mean, but yeah, that was, that was his question is what was it like working with Kevin? Um, it was fantastic. You- it was, it was, I mean, it was amazing. I loved Kevin. He was brilliant. And we used to, I mean, he used to have great, discussions about music and philosophy and politics and every, you know, he was very, very, and, and he was such a, he was, he was, had a very scholarly approach to music. He was very academic. Um, I mean, unbelievably talented him and Pat were always grated. There was always a thing, always a thing there, which probably, were, but Hey, you know, I can think of other bands I've been in where that's <laughs> yeah. been a yeah. thing, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, yeah, but the thing is, you know, but but it was Pat who brought me in, and Pat who to this day remains, you know, my great friend, and actually the person I kind of after David have the most to be grateful. Really, for. I've tried getting him on here. I haven't heard back. Pat, like oh, Pat's Pat. like, well, he, he's in a good place right now. Um, good. Yeah. Good. So toy matinee, then yeah, that's um, what happened with Kevin, and then. Did you have I, the thing is, I left because I wasn't there when they finished. I wasn't oh. there when they finished. Uh, yes, I did have something to Tuesday. In fact, I'm doing uncredited backing vocals on the Shanana song. And if you listen, you can hear it's me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wondered what that whole situation was like. So I let, well, here's the thing that we worked on that album for months and it was brilliant. It was heavy. It was fantastic fun. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic fun. And probably the best work I've ever done on a record as a bass player. Really? I can uh, see that. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And, um, uh, but then I had to leave to go off on the 89 Floyd tour. Mm. 
So, and then also, and then all kinds. So I sort of forgot about it and yeah. I didn't realize all the stuff on. And the thing is then, and and it was a band. I was, I, I thought I was in a band. Yeah. But then apparently when this contract came to my manager, Tarkin, and he just went, this contract is so awful. You do not want to sign this. Really? I went, oh, really? I went, all right, fine. And, and it's, it's you know, they're in LA. It's 6,000 miles away. I don't, you know, yeah. so. So I said, fine. So I didn't, so I said, that's fine. I won't be a band member, which is why I'm not great. You know, which is why it just says Pat mm. and Kevin. And then I, and then all this stuff happened. Then, then the next thing I heard from them was someone I didn't, some manager or someone I'd never heard of would have called me up and asked me if I'd come out and be in the last plane out video. And if I'd pay half my airfare. Really? I was like, um, no. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> wow. Wait, did you just mention that Tarquin Gotch was your manager? Yeah. He's been on the show too. Oh, Tar well, Tarquin's instrumental in Rock on Tours. Is he really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. Either, yeah, no, Tar I mean, I lived with Tarquin in LA. All Everything I ever did in LA, toy matinee, Madonna, everything, uh -huh. I was when I was sharing a house with Tarquin. Well, it was his house, and he very cleverly got me to stay there and got the record companies to pay him for my accommodation. <laughs> so he was probably charging charging four seasons right. rates <laughs> for my little box room <laughs> really <laughs> yeah yeah tarquin no, no. i had tarquin uh, they were on happy here. happy days that happy and he was the he tarquin was the absolutely i mean i had to live with someone because i couldn't look uh -huh. after myself sure. and tarquin was absolutely the best person to be living with really we we're on benedict, no, canyon. on benedict canyon we were literally 50 uh, that this is why i love once upon a time in hollywood so much because mm. that's literally where we lived 50 really? yards from Los Cielos Drive. Yeah, that's literally where we were, on Benedict Canyon. No way. Yeah. Yeah, he, a couple of years ago, so my favorite movie soundtrack ever, I think, is some kind of wonderful. And I thought, who am I going to get on here to talk about that soundtrack with me? And I noticed he was the musical direct, director of the movie. Well, he did that brilliant thing of he got all those English bands yes. a foothold in America by getting them on John Hughes films. That's yeah. exactly what we talked about. And he, yep. he, I met him because he, um, well, actually, I first met my first ever band, this mod revival band called Speedball. He came to see us at some pub in East London by mistake. And then he went through, the. he thought he was seeing another band. And then he actually went through the rigmarole of having a meeting with our manager. And he had no interest at all. Whoops. But then okay. he managed Dream Academy. That's right. Dream Academy. And, and he then he introduced the me. And that's how I got to work with Stephen Duffy, because he was managing him as well. Got it. And uh, he did the soundtrack to She's Having a Baby. Yeah. Which is where uh, Kirstie's I Just Haven't Earned It Yet Baby appears oh, on that soundtrack. Oh, there and you so go. That's all these connected dots. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so um, so you thought Toy Matinee was going to be a thing. And they, it should have been. It's it's like, um, it's kind of like when Mr. Mr. or Toto or one of these bands where like all the best session people there are come together to make their own music. That's kind of what Toy Matinee reminds well, yeah, me of a little bit. I, I, I so didn't want to do that. I remember having a thing when we had one of our first band dinners. Because, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of Toto or any of that okay. sort of thing. I mean, I, uh -huh. they're all fantastic music. I love all of their work. I love, right. there's a million records by all those guys that I absolutely love. But right. I don't, I, I, that whole muso band shtick, I hate. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always going to be a London punk rocker, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and um and, and i had this thing that at this first band dinner when i said i want us to be the anti-toto uh-huh <laughs> <And, laughs> <Toto, nice. laughs> okay 
so yeah, that was the thing. Oh, I mean, the timing was kind. Of, I, I see that album as very. It's like a bridge between the eighties and the nineties. I agree. I, mean, I agree. I mean, Brian yeah. was very much this new school of drumming where he didn't want to be Jeff Beccaro. He could be Ringo, you know, and and it's just, you know, and I, I, I mean, also yeah, it's all very very accomplished. But it's got it's like there's a psychedelic edge to it. There's something you know, going on there. It's different. Yeah, there's something yeah. going on there. That's you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, look, and also, and Pat, you've got to remember, was not really Pat was the biggest pop producer in the world True. at True. the time. You yeah. Know? If you're going to work with, what it was. Closely it, with Madonna, yeah, then you're the big, you're yeah, the no, guy. Basically, uh, Mo Foster at Warner's had just called him up and said, You made us half a billion dollars this year. What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the end of part one. Now, I was worried that we sort of squeezed in some talk of Toy Matinee because, frankly, that was what a lot of people, a lot of the Patreon supporters had questions about. And so when we regrouped a couple weeks later, I kind of wanted to get more into it again. So we kick it off talking more about Toy Matinee. Now, normally, when we have people who did a lot of session work on here, and I ask them about some collaboration of theirs or some album they played on or artist they played with or whatever, if there's not really a good story there, we just cut it out. You know, they couldn't remember or it doesn't go anywhere or whatever. We just cut that out. And I could have done that with some of these because I asked him about a bunch. But even when he doesn't have a ton to say about that exact song or moment or artist, it almost always led to a bigger broader story about somebody name dropping someone somewhere that was so fascinating and funny that i just decided to leave all that stuff in so you may hear uh me first of all you may hear some things you heard in the first section not a lot though and then secondly you'll learn more about toy matinee and thirdly when i ask him some about his, some of his collaborations like robbie robertson and rod stewart and a few others uh they don't necessarily lead to Peter Cetera's one. They don't lead, need, lead necessarily to stories about that person, but greater stories about other people who are involved. It just, it's so much fun. So here's part two. Now we left off last time talking about Toy Matinee and I feel like we didn't quite give it its justice. So I wanted to kind of okay. get into it one more time and redo that if you don't mind. Um, okay. So a lot of people were asking me to ask you about Toy Matinee. And this, my understanding is that this was kind of going to be the first time you were a member of like an actual band that yeah. a key member writing the songs, touring, but it only lasted one album. So what all happened there? Um, well, well, to be honest, uh, there was never, when Pat asked me to do it, because uh, I was the first person he asked. I was the first person to come on board. And I didn't really see anything past an album. I hadn't thought that far. Also, because I was pretty sure I was gonna have, there was going to be more Floyd stuff coming up. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I guess, I guess that I mean that that um, I would literally was only thinking of an album, but it was it was as a band member. I mean, I was I kind of auditioned the other people with Pat. You know, it's kind of like I had a say. Um, uh, although obviously, I, I don't think if Pat felt really strongly about someone, I didn't. But I mean, we both we were both had very similar takes. I mean, it was it was especially when we. Had, when we saw Brian and we we're both just like, yeah, no, that's, that's clearly the guy. And then, then I knew that because Brian was so anti the sort of the LA player of the time, which is the sort of Jeff Beccaro, Vinnie Coluto, you know, super chops thing. Yeah. And the fact that, that Pat was so hip to that, that's why I thought, yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're totally on the same page here. Mm. Mm. Uh, 
So what were you going to do then? Were you just going to do one album and then let it float out in the ether and go back to about it. Well, well, you know, I mean, Pat was, I mean, the things, you know, Pat was the hottest writer, producer in the world at that point. So it's not like he wasn't going to have, you know, work coming up to do. True, true. So, you know, so, yeah, I mean, it was, I think that it was meant to be, it was more of a kind of, um, a sort of pressure valve release for Pat because he'd just been working his ass off and and he you know he'd, he'd been doing all this stuff that he didn't necessarily want to do you know I mean it wasn't his dream to be Mr. Pop mm-hmm. okay you know and that's where he found himself and it's but it you know and he was just so incredibly good at it yeah um I mean, you got to remember, you know, he, he in the, the two years before that, two, three years, he, he'd written and produced with everyone. Yeah. You know, I yeah. met him working on Brian Ferry. He'd had those two Madonna albums. He'd had, you know, he had a song on the Pink Floyd album. Mm-hmm. He had, you know, he was working with Dream Academy. There's literally every, everyone yeah. in the world wanted a bit yeah. of Pat. So, I so I don't, so he wasn't thinking about this is now my band. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. He was okay. just like, I want to do, you know, yeah, my own I thing, my, my own thing. Yeah. And obviously, you know, and as, he, as he said, Mo Foster at Warner's said, you've made us half a billion dollars this year. What do you want to do? That's right. So, and he picked you. That's amazing. <laughs> so tell me about Kevin Gilbert, because, um, Kevin's kind of a little bit of a tragic figure. You know, he passed away eventually. And I, my understanding is that he, was more involved with Cheryl Crow's Tuesday night music club stuff than he got credit for. And that was hard. He was her boyfriend at the time, right? Yeah. That, well, that all happened. Um, that all happened after. That was after I'd left when that whole thing started to happen. That was because Bill Bottrell, who was engineering the album. Yeah. That Tuesday night music club started. And I don't know if it was at this time, but, uh, but then uh, Kevin ended up with, had a studio in the same building as Bill uh, Bottrell out in Pasadena. Okay. And yeah, I'd, I already, I'd met Cheryl before I'm, I'd met Cheryl on tour with Michael Jackson when Did you? I was on tour with Pink Floyd, when she was doing backing vocals for Michael Jackson. Yeah. And we hung out, um, her and Greg Felling, filling gains used to be yeah. with the people we see. <laughs> and in fact, I remember once the pair of them being in someone's hotel in one of our hotel rooms and, uh, David called up, David Gilmore called uh-huh. up and said, oh, what's going on? I think we're in Gary's room. And Gary was like, uh, oh, we're all in my room. It was like, all right. So so David came down. And I remember the look on Greg and Cheryl's face, because like that was the equivalent to Michael Jackson saying, so what's going on? And coming and hanging out in one of the bands with us. It was completely natural. That's what, you know, happened every night. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, that whole uh, Tuesday night music club thing, Happened off because I remember I went and did some because in fact, funny enough, after talking that next time I was over in LA, I got this really funny gig. Uh, a friend of mine, this Australian guy Ray Hearn, who used to manage Ice House, had moved to Japan and was working in the Japanese music business, and had been for years. And uh, and he would occasionally call me up with weird things. And there was this youth movement in Tokyo called uh, in Japan called Bodycon Girls, right? Which was basically just body conscious girls. It was like a youth. Thing. Oh, okay, okay. Fit girls, and uh-huh. so someone had started this sort of proto girl group called the Bodycon Girls, and he asked me to write a song for them, That's and it was a really, 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 really specific brief. Which was this story no, I've heard? Yeah. Oh, you know this one. You don't I know do know this one, one, but you know this. I one. know this one. Yeah. Continue. This is funny. I didn't tell you this before, did I? No, you didn't. One of my listeners told me about this. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and the brief was, was very, very funny. It was um, uh, verse in a major key. Oh, no, verse in a minor key, chorus in a major key, no L or R sounds. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, this is a puzzle. And I thought, 
Well, this is who I thought. Oh, I, I know who'd be fun to do this with would be Kevin. <laughs> so, so I went and, and I said, okay. So we got right. No LRR. So love is out for a start. And um, we thought about it and, and Kevin was brilliant. He threw himself in. So we came up. We wrote the song called "Make Some Time for Me," <laughs> and and it was really it had some great chords in it. it. Had a real scritty politi kind of vibe. To Ooh, it. nice. And, yeah, and he, um, yeah, no, I was big, big, big scritty politi. I love scritty. Yeah, yeah. And um, and he and his girlfriend Cheryl Crow came and sang it. <laughs> and the funny thing is, was because she had she was still quite fresh off Michael Jackson then. On the vocals, she, because she did on, on the Michael Jackson show, she actually did all the. <laughs> she did them. It wasn't Michael. No way. Uh, and so she, so it's peppered with these little Michael Jackson. <laughs> 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 yeah, and obviously I've got a cassette of it somewhere, but yeah. I can't. I, I got no that idea. That is you know, genius. Stuff is loft to yeah. I love that. I love it. Um, okay, yeah, I did know that story. One of my listeners, speaking of Madonna and Pink Floyd, one of my listeners, Michael Bagford, asked, "Who was more difficult to play with, Pink Floyd or Madonna?" Uh, well, it depends what you mean by difficult. I mean, no, they were both a joy. I mean, a joy. Really? You know? It's what about uh, yeah, difficult I mean, musically? I mean, that, a music. Well, um, well, but like, I guess Madonna because I did. I mean, also because I felt very on show with her uh, and Pat's. I mean, the, my bass parts were generally very simple. I mean, like a prayer is the most fucking technically flash thing i've ever done on a record really that's not I didn't know that. songs... oh yeah definitely the, the middle okay. section of like a prayer it's the highlight of my whole career I don't know. I, I don't know why things have to. Who, why do things have to be difficult? Oh, okay. Okay. No, no, I know. I know. It's fine. I know. It's, it's a totally reasonable question to ask, but it's just like I don't think of things in terms of difficult. They were both fantastic things to do. You know? Okay. Okay. <laughs> One of my other Patreon supporters, Martin, asked this question, which I thought was really good. Um, 
Is there anyone who you think you couldn't have on your podcast, either because they are too close to you or they mean too much to you for some reason, and you don't trust yourself to do the job justice? Oh, that's very interesting. And he's not, he says specifically not in terms of like bad vibes, but if there's, you know, someone you haven't interviewed or played with because you think nerves might take you over. Um, There is one person that might apply to, but we have actually asked him on the podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm worried it will probably be a disaster. And if actually, if you just check back through my history, it'd be quite easy to work out who that is. But I'm okay. 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 <laughs> but okay. yeah, sorry, it's a good question. But obviously, obviously, um, I can't really, I can't really say what the answer. Now you can't because, because they might be coming on the yeah, show. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, or they certainly wouldn't be once they. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Maybe Gary. Will I mean, have that to thing, it's like when, when people say, "Who's the worst person you ever worked with?" It's like you can only ask someone that question once they've retired. That's true. Because if I say who the worst person I ever worked with is, why would anyone ever hire me again? <laughs> That's right. That's so true. <laughs> I know. Even though that's the kind of stuff everybody reasons, wants. One of the reasons, by the way, for why for podcasts, I think, uh, unless they're retired, that this is why, because a lot of people, we get a lot of requests asking for sidemen, and there are all sorts of sidemen mm. who I'd love to talk to, I love to, and who are friends of mine and everything. But the mm. difference is, it's you're not going to get the good stuff because they work for people. Yeah. And if they want to keep on working for people, they can't fucking tell you the deep stuff about the people they've worked for. It's true. I've had tons. I love talking to sidemen and producers on here because I just go down their resume, all the things I like, I just ask them about it. And you're right. No one's going to trash talk anybody. I had Tim Pierce on here and he couldn't remember anything. He was such a nice guy, but I would ask him, oh, you played on this. Did I? I don't really remember. You know, I would yeah, want a story. Yeah, but that's, but that's the politician's trick, isn't it? That's yeah, what it might be. In America, that's what everyone does in front of the Senate committee. I'm sorry, I don't recall. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, okay, let me throw a few more out at you. Um, Robbie Robertson's Storyville. Yes. Uh, I, I bought that album as soon as I saw it because I was such a fa- huge fan of the album before it. And as Storyville well, was well, a little, yes. And Storyville was a little too mature for me at the time. I didn't quite get it. I like it now, but it wasn't Robbie Robertson part two. How did you get involved in that project? I, I mean, that's a, that was a real wild card that um, I'm still so thrilled and honored to be on it. Just you know, yeah. be on the Robbie Robertson album. Totally. Um, especially after the first, you know, because the one before had been, it was the full kind of high-end 80s bingo scorecard. That's you know, so Daniel nice. Lanoir, tick, Tony Levin, tick, yep. Manu Kache, tick. Yep. It was all that, you know. And yep. so you feel like you're walking into that sort of. Uh, thing it was because Stephen Haig was producing it, who was a really good and remains a really really good friend of mine. Who uh, was quite a funny choice to produce. I mean, he was a great choice to produce because he's a fantastic, meticulous, incredibly fastidious producer. But he he was kind of known for he he did New Order and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, he was a real. Oh, I know. 80, I'm a huge 80s, fan. Yeah, yeah, no, I lo- I love Stephen. Um, he's also very funny, very dry wit. Is he? he oh, wow. But anyway, but so, yeah, so he asked me, and I can't remember, I, I think I knew Stephen through Simon Climey. Oh, somehow. sure. Okay. I can't remember how I met Simon Climey. Um, uh, I was in a Climey Fisher video, I think, and then I did, played on some <laughs> demos of his. And yeah, he introduced okay. me. And so I worked with Stephen for years. So I got asked to do that, but I literally, so I flew in to do that album literally straight from, um, there, there was that sec. Okay, so Toy Matinee. Mm-hmm. flew straight from Toy Matinee to London, uh, where I had one day to do a Pink Floyd rehearsal and play on as much 
of the third Toy Matinee um, uh, Dream Academy album as I could. All right. Uh, then off did that European tour, which was Moscow, Venice, all that. That tour finished in Marseille. I flew straight from there to LA to start the Robbie Robertson album, which was <laughs> fucking nuts. I mean, I should have gone on holiday, you know. But yeah, I was yeah. In, I was a mess, but I, I um, but it was like I couldn't. That's when they wanted to start, and I couldn't. It's Robbie Robertson. You can't yeah, say no. Of course. So, um, so there, yeah. And I worked on that for months. I was in quite a bad way. For, I mean, I was I was coming in late quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Robbie, I, Robbie I see. What, very cool. I get what yeah. you mean. Um, but, was, but I got to like where I was hang, working with Zigaboo, Moda Lest, and like every drummer in the world, Ginger Baker. Yeah. Um, um, Tony Williams, even yeah, um, uh, 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 Jerry Marotta. Um, I mean, fucking everyone. It was an incredible roll call of musicians. Yeah, so, you look at it the was list because when it came out, when it came out, and I looked at, it and, and I was there for months. But when it came out, I looked at, it and, and I'm on six songs. I'm like, oh fuck, I didn't make the whole album. It's like, no, of course you didn't, you idiot. And then you look at everything else, and all the other people there, everyone else is on two, three tracks. It's like, you did good, you did fine. And, you know, it's one of those albums you're never gonna make it onto the whole album. Yes, it's so funny. But the funny I... thing is, yes, go ahead, no, go on. No, you go. Uh, well, what was quite funny was, uh, I guess, I hadn't really noticed at the time because there's um, Bill Dylan, the guitarist head in, who's amazing. Um, real uh, great soundscape guy. Had tons of, he used to have so many effects and stuff going. I remember Robbie once saying to him, do, do you need an assistant? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, Rob was, Robbie was incredibly funny. Uh, and um, uh, oh, I lost my thread. Oh, yeah, Zigaboo Modalest, right? Yeah, because I think Bill had New Orleans connection and there was Zigaboo. Okay. And there was talk of various meetings, and there was someone else came in, but that I wasn't really aware of a particularly big New Orleans thing. Mm. It wasn't really talked about, and it wasn't really so when it came out, and and it was like, oh, okay, it's all oh, right. Story, it's New Orleans. It's all about yeah. New Orleans. Everything's doing New Orleans. It's like right. I don't remember. Well, well, I was in LA. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so. that the album before it has a New Orleans kind of feel to it too. But yeah, I mean, you look at the, like Neil Young sings backing vocals on one song and uh, J.R. Robinson is on a couple of songs. I, uh, Ginger Baker is in there, skip snare on one song. So like if well, you Ginger have- was there for a while. So here's the, fu- I've got to, this is the funny thing, okay. man. This, is, this okay. is when you get about getting older because Ginger was, was a few years older than, because I was used to working with middle-aged guys, right? I was, everyone I worked with was older, was like 15, 17 years older than me. Uh, that's that's how the world was. That's how I just thought the world was going to be for me. Um, and Ginger was just like a few years older than his peers, mm-hmm. right? So every, so about this time, everyone was hitting sort of 45, right? That whole <laughs> boomer generation, right? All, the, all those musicians were hitting 45. And while Ginger was working with us, he had his 50th birthday and invited us to his 50th birthday. Now, I was 27 at the time. <laughs> and I remember thinking, and we were like, 50? Who the fuck is 50? And it's like, well, we just thought 50 was like an actual old person. And there were things like, I remember Ginger would be working out parts and then you'd record and he'd forget his part. And we literally were going, yeah, well, you know, he, 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 he is 50. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at you now, right? I know, 59. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, okay, just a couple more. I wanted to ask you about, uh, and did you, what did you do with Iggy Pop? 
Uh, I did, that was just through my mate Steve Lillywhite. It was, oh. I don't know why, uh, it was a duet. It was him and Debbie Harry doing oh, a duet. On, yeah, for the Red Hot Blue album. album. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever? Which is a fucking great. Did you ever? Which is a great yes. and a hilarious, beautifully wry, ironic, funny take on the song. I love it. It's, I've always loved I, that I, one. Yeah, I didn't realize you. Uh, were but I did. I did, did then write and produce a song for Debbie Harry. I wrote a song oh, with her. And, oh, which one? Called which Co- one? Communion on the Deprivation Album. Communion. Okay, good. We'll play a little bit of Communion. Which ended right up in the film Coneheads. Be a fan. <laughs> nice. I love that. Um, okay. And speaking of some, uh, so I don't, I'm curious how this went. You played with Peter Cetera and uh, he's a, he's a bit of an anomaly. I don't no one I don't think quite knows what to make of Peter Cetera. What was your experience like? And maybe this is one of those My, things where okay. you can't say anything because then you won't work again. I don't know. No, no, no. This is, no, this is, it's actually very funny because basically um, this happened when, uh, 
it was on the first leg of the Pink Floyd tour I was doing. And we came into LA, right? And this unstoppable behemoth. We'd only been on the road for a couple of months. And you've got to remember, it was touch and go when we started. They had to have teams of lawyers and everything. They didn't know that, you know, they'd sold the tickets. They didn't know how it was going to go down. And we'd fucking nailed it. We were this world concrete bit. And it was this all for one and one for all. Everyone running behind David. And, you know, you, I'm, I can imagine I was just an unbearable arsehole by this point. And, um, who I was going to bed very rarely, mm. right? I should point out. Uh, and so we hit LA, and um, Pat, Pat Leonard's like, "Hey guys, I'm doing this Pizza Terror album." Well, he's and David said, "Yeah, I'll come and play." Mm. And so David went down and did the solo, which was just you know um, enormous because you know he he's playing in stadiums every night, so yeah, he just wherever he it. goes, he takes the stadium with him, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so just this thing, and then what's annoying was this LA socialite Wendy Stark was having a party for the band, and which was literally just everyone was there from Quincy Jones to Joni Mitchell to you know Don, uh-huh. everyone. And I said to Pat, "I'll come and play on this song." So I've gone down. The band are all at this fucking party, and I'm stuck in the studio with Pete Terra. And I, by the, I don't, at this point, I haven't been to bed for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Right? I think I've got a big bag of nose with me, uh-huh. and I'm so, and I'm just, and the bass I played was just hysterical. It's just full <laughs> octave pedal madness. It's this, you know, it, it's completely out of control. I was, you know, word of advice to any producers: do not ask people to play on your record if they are coming through town in the middle of a stadium tour. <laughs> But people see people really. I mean, here's the thing. I was so off my nut. I was so. I remember at one point, Pat says, uh, as we're playing through it, Pat goes, Oh, there's a solo here. I go, Right. And off I go. And what he meant was, This is where the guitar solo is. <laughs> and I just fucking. <laughs> I just go, so, Hey, clearly means me. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, was Peter? Did you get to interact with Peter very much? Not really. I think he was there for a bit. I mean, I can't really remember. And I, I, you know, and I okay. don't want to say. I'm, and no. it's a lovely song. And you know, yeah. come on, the, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay. Just uh, curious. I so I, I have no insights into, into Peter Cetera. Okay. I'm okay. Afraid. Um, I'm sure he's lovely. I'm sure he probably is. Um, yes. Now, just a couple more. Uh, Rod Stewart, Spanner in the Works. Uh, you play on Hang On, Say Christopher, is my understanding, the Tom Waits song. Do you have I any do. recollection oh, yeah. of this? Trevor yeah, Horn, I think, be, produces. I, I had a, yeah, that, but that was, I mean, Rob wasn't there. That was because Trevor's a mate. I, I go through periods with Trevor where oh. Trevor suddenly goes, oh, yeah, guy. <laughs> and he sort of gets me in. And then we and we get on really well, and, uh-huh. and we have a nice hangout. So then, uh, so then I'm on Trevor's radar, and then he sort of gets me in for a few things. Okay, and then he does something, and then I drift off the radar, and then I come back on it, and it's always lovely. So it was just a thing of so he just got me into. I mean, he had I think of the same. I mean, so yeah, I played on that. I I, I guess. Okay. Um, did, I, did I play bass on it? Uh, yeah, that's what it said. But I'll skip. We can skip over that. There's not. No, no, I don't mind. It's fine, but I don't okay. really remember. But it, that's that, that's just a, that that would have been a really pleasant day in the studio with Trevor. Got it. So, I mean, like got he got it. me into like I played on when he did the share album, and this was brilliant. He, he got me to I played acoustic guitar on one of my f- absolute favorite songs of all time, which is um, "The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore." Really? Yeah, I play acoustic on that. Shade of blue 
Was that, were you, did, is that because Trevor knew that you were actually a secretly good acoustic guitar player? Or no, this is a very funny thing. Trevor has this role. Trevor's absolutely right because Trevor's such a brilliant producer. Uh, Trevor knows that the golden rule is the acoustic guitar. If you want acoustic guitar on a song, it should be played by anyone, anyone but the guitarist. The one person <laughs> that you do not want playing is that literally. The guy delivering the pizza is a better <laughs> choice of playing the acoustic than the guitarist. Because a guitarist will go, I could do this, or uh -huh. I could give you that, or how about I do that? Well, well you want someone to go, C! <laughs> That's right. G! <laughs> 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 oh, that makes so, sense. And so, obviously, because my, you know, my ego and my pride aren't tied up in my acoustic guitar playing, so right. I was giving whatever you want. Well, actually, I did come up with quite a sweet little picky piece for it. Yeah. Um, okay. Why uh, Echo and the Bunny Man? The yes. What do you want to do with My your life wow. album? Let's go take a starlight drive to where the shaping of our lives have just begun. When we were young, and everything was coming right, and all our dreams of love and life. The sun, get in the car, taking a ride, looking for stars, looking for I uh, I had Will on here recently, and uh, he's such a so much more humble than I thought he would be. I imagined him being more like Ian, but he's not at all. And uh, that was not a happy period for him. But why did you get brought in to play bass on that album? Uh, I got brought in to play bass because the manager at that time was a guy who is um, Paul Tugood, who was my manager at the time. Mm. And he liked that idea of it. And I, I knew Mac. I was hanging out with Mac quite a bit, and I got on with him very well. I mean, he's mm -hmm. brilliant. I love him. He's a brilliant man. Mm -hmm. He's um, so incredibly kind of cocksure and what should be arrogant, but it just isn't with him. 
it just isn't it just works yeah. you know he's, yeah. he's, he's a sweetheart um and it was quite funny because we we recorded was at par street in liverpool now i remember it was like it was like being under siege <laughs> you, you never left the building <laughs> why there but i don't know because it was liverpool <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no i don't know okay. yes like everything you wanted was in the studio but yeah it was you know i mean he's a he's a great concert i did some shows with them as well i did reading festival with them Oh really? And a few festivals in Europe, yeah, yeah, and okay. happy days. I'm very, happy. but yeah, you're right. I mean, Will was quite quiet. I really like Will. Got him. He was always had interesting little bits of gear. In fact, I think I got him. I think he ended up buying a microphone through me because I suddenly came up. Someone I knew had a stash of these cheap AKG mics. Really? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, okay. I still got mine. They're really good. But yeah, okay. he was a he's a lovely. He's a very very considered man. I mean, and he's really he's the real deal. It's like he's always thinking about music and stuff to do with music and yeah. like, you know. Yeah, I loved him. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you why do people call? Why did or do they people call Guy Pratt when if they're working on something and they need something a certain something, and they think of Guy Pratt? What is that thing? Why do they call you? It depends what it is. I'll be, I'll be honest. I think a lot of it back in the day is that, I mean, yeah, there are people like Pat Leonard, for instance, who calls me because he knows exactly what I do way better than I do. Mm. And he can get the exact thing that he wants out of me. And he always does. And it's always, and I'm always kind of scared going in with Pat because thinking, fuck, everything I ever do with Pat is so good. The bar is so high, but it always happens because he makes it happen, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I'm um, a lot of the, but when I used to do, you know, back when there was a music business, when I used to do a lot of sessions, a lot of it was a lot of the pop records I played on is, let's be honest, 80% of sort of pop rock records. I mean, anyone can, could play the bass, really. Anyone could do it. I mean, obviously, it's good, but it's anyone could do it. Right. And, um, right. and the thing is, you've got a list of bass players. We can get this guy and get this guy. Oh, we can get Guy. He's a laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that comes up a lot. You know, that's kind of the deciding factor on a lot of this is, who do people want to hang out with? Yeah. And they just, you bring a good vibe. You don't disrupt anything. Yeah. You don't offend anyone. You're good time. You probably brought good drugs. They, uh, they like to have a guy around. Right? No, I, I never, I never brought the drugs. Oh, you just <laughs> stole them from the people who had them. Got them. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I have to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of times on your podcast about being on the set, or maybe you just did this with Lowell cream being on the set of the rocket video. Tell yeah. me what tell me about that. I, I have no idea. It was I was thinking about this. Uh, there was a thing when you're young and it was the age and you're kind of and I was busy, uh, but then you have lots of time that you're not you had lots of days off, uh, you know, when you just weren't really doing anything, and you just go and hang out places. Yeah. You just go and drop into this studio, you go and drop into this record company, you go, oh, and there was always someone you knew was working on so, oh, and it was probably someone I was with this friend of mine, Sagat Geary, I remember, and he, and I think we knew someone who was working on this video down at the studio. So let's go and see so-and-so down at the video. And that's mm. simple as that. And we walked in, there was this mad scene of all these robot legs and all this yeah. stuff. And then someone said, Hey, get out of the way. So I went and ducked behind the sofa. No way. <laughs> yeah. So at some point in that video, if a sofa's you, there, you, you might have been ways. ducking behind it. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> and then uh, that was, I mean, that thing was huge. That was, it's still a fantastic work of art, that video. And it was a game changer at the time too. Yeah. And you're in there. Absolutely. Um, all right. So last question then. What, uh, why you became an actor and like a stand-up comedian no. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 
it's your acting career or stand-up com- comedy career isn't so much yeah. a thing in the States. So it's, I'm no, not no, as no, familiar no. with it, it's, but how did this happen? No, no, you wouldn't be. Uh, okay. It was something, but I'd always want to do something in comedy. I've always done all bits of comedy writing. I've always been friends with comedians. I mean, a lot of, you know, there's a big, a lot of, a lot of comedians were musicians started as, you know, there's a, always been a big mm-hmm. interchange between that. And, um, you know, I like making people laugh. I'd like, it's one of the reasons people. Like You're me good around. at it. So, yeah. <laughs> so and and but then I got to forty and everything had kind of sort of you know, my work dried up and everything and I was and I suddenly thought you know what I'd, I'd hate it if I went through life and had never never tried anything and I suddenly and also I was very aware of there's this thing I see with people my age this thing I called sideman bitterness which is when people are kind of like waiting for this acclaim and recognition it's like mate it's not coming you've got to do something of your own it doesn't matter if it succeeds or not but if if you've got something you can call your own then you're fine going back and just working for other people and not not getting pissed off about it and and I thought well you've got all this great material which is your life because I mean all musicians sit around the bar telling stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, like I said, obviously there's the slight sideman problem here, of you know, but but the thing is, I found that I could most of the stories I have, the only person who comes out of it looking a dick is me. <laughs> so, you okay. know, and that's yeah. and, you know, we Brits, we do self-deprecation. Te- that's do our it. humor. You know, you're so, good at um, it. So okay. I just had this idea. So I thought I'd just get up and try and tell some of my stories. And then I started working some bass into it. And then I ended up at the Edinburgh Festival and I loved it. And it's because it's, it's all so unexpected because people are going, well, this guy's a bass player and people, and I don't know what, and there's, you know, and there'll be loads of kind of, you know, muso heads who've dragged along their girlfriend or their wife. And it's like, I, w- I want to entertain her as well. And so it was the, the great thing about it was every time I got on stage, it was a complete unknown, uh-huh. which was so nice compared to you. Cause you know, for, for, my life as a musician, you get up on stage with David Gilmore, you play Wish You Were Here, you've got a pretty good idea of how it's going to go down. <laughs> you know what I mean? You and get it on better stage go with... down that way every night. Exactly. And you yeah. get on stage with Brian Ferry, you play Love is the Drug. You've got a pretty good idea of how it's going to go down. Right. So this, this great thing was not knowing. And, and, there's, and there's, for me, there's just nothing better than a laugh. It's so... Yeah instant yeah. And yeah. so yeah so i did that for years now i had the you know a book deal came out of that and um the book's still in print it's not very but it's a bit of a sort of cult classic by all accounts Good. nice and um and it took me around the world i went to australia like four times been around europe with it which is tricky i played in new york and la with it okay i never got okay. an american tour I was, I was surprised i never actually got an american tour and it's you know they're big audiences i mean i they go actually, i had a very funny thing with my son the other day when he said, Dad, your comedy, what's, he said, what's the biggest audience that you ever got yourself? I went, 800,000. He went, 800,000? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's <that's> great. <laughs> okay, last so, thing. Yeah. One of the things I love about you, Guy, and it's apparent on the podcast and in talking with you, is that you know that if you were, as you were saying, if you were to go down to the pub with Guy Pratt, you would just be, there would be a barrage of fantastic stories for hours and hours and hours. And I'm always, I brought up all the things that kind of meant something to me, but I'm curious if there's a story that you haven't told a million times, that's one of your favorites that you could, you know, that I didn't ask the question that sparked it. Okay, there's something that happened to me um, just a couple of years ago. 
uh, things I can't remember what I told you last time. And it's not a particularly funny story, but it, it, this is something that really, really means a lot to me because okay. my absolute hero was Bernard Edwards, right? Oh. And then I had that whole thing when I got to meet him and I got to work with him. And then, you know, and then he suggested to Robert Palmer that I should play on the Riptide album. Yep. So, but the first time I was in a studio with him, which was at the Power Station, when I got snuck in on the Power Station album, and I said to him, I, I'm amazed I had the presence of mind to do this, because which apparently I seem to do in when I'm really scared. And I said, Bernard, I cannot tell you just how scared I am right now, how, how terrified I am. I said, who, if anyone, would do that to you? Who would make you feel the way I do right now? And without a second doubt, I just went, Chuck Rainey. Really? What? Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, before COVID, I was at this Warwick bases thing in Germany where they get all the, it's a brilliant thing they do. They do this base camp, but they get really probably like Lee Sklar and Chuck Rainey, all these amazing people come over. It's a, and I got to know so many bass players through it. It's lovely. Um, but I was at this thing and Chuck Rainey was there and I met Chuck Rainey and I said, um, Oh, Chuck said, um, you know, did you, did you know Bernard Edwards? He said, no, I never met the guy. He said, I oh. never met him. He said, he said, and I absolutely loved him. You know, I love what he did. And I went, Man, I've got to tell you <laughs> that you know when I wow, had this yes. Bernard, and I said, "Who was your guy?" and he told me you, wow. and that was such a beautiful thing I, to be able yes. to, to do. To, yes, to oh, let Chuck Rainey know that. Yeah, so there you that go. That is that's great. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks, guy, for chatting with me. Uh, you're the best, and um, <laughs> I, I thank you for telling me all these fantastic stories. There you have it, Guy Pratt. You guys, I couldn't laugh anymore. I don't, I mean, when you're at 11, the whole time, where do you go? Your mouth can't get, can't smile any wider. You can't laugh any heartier. You can't think of more things to say as a response, as an exclamation to all of these stories. They just kept coming. It was nonstop and they were fantastic. I loved it. I loved all the stories on here. Um, we're going to close it out with Earth Song. Uh, guys play, paying the, playing the bass on this one. I love this song. It's a classic, and he sounds amazing on it. I want to include a few other things that didn't quite come out very directly in here. Number one, he and Gary Kemp are playing with Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets these days. Obviously, everything is grounded, but I think those guys are going to go back out on tour maybe early next year. So if they pass through your town, look it up. It's great. Secondly, he's written a book. You can buy his book. He tells a lot of these stories and tons, tons, tons more in the book. And he used to do a lot of stand-up or like uh, readings from the book live. I don't know if he still does that or not, but that might be out there too. And on YouTube, look up his lockdown videos because they are fantastic. He goes through playing bass, what he did, the stories behind playing the bass on a lot of songs like this one, Earth Song. Fantastic. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Now, this one's kicking off another bit of a winning streak. I'm just going to be honest. And most of the people that make up this next winning streak are Brits. It's just the way it is. Next week is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. One of my favorite, but one of the greatest. There's Lennon McCartney. There's Jagger Richards. There's Holland Dozier Holland. There's Elton John and Bertie Taupin, and there's this guy and his partner and the band they're in. And if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you already know that I love this band. We've already featured a member of this band a few years ago, and uh, that is who next week's guest is, and I'm pretty excited about it. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our main man, our right-hand man, Jan the Man Malkiewicz. We're so glad he's back. A lot of family stuff to deal with, obviously. Huge thank you to Ken Mills for stepping in periodically the last few weeks. Jan is finally here, and things seem to be better. Thank you, buddy, for everything you do. We love you. Um, you guys know by now you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will be back hopefully this weekend with a... I've had a deep dive to send out for the last couple of weeks, but because of Yan's schedule and everything just being crazy, we haven't gotten to do it, but I think it's coming this weekend, hopefully. And uh, if not, we will see you next Tuesday, all right? Bye, everybody. We love you.